mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hello and welcome to Sentimental in the City, a mini-series where we talk about each season of Sex and the City for the great American novel it truly is. My name is my friend who died, Caroline O'Donoghue, and joining me is, you are a comic, Dolly Alderton. Hello. 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 I think we have to be completely honest and admit to the fact that we've had a bit of an emotional few hours. Yes. Because Caroline and I decided to watch the latter half of season six remotely in tandem. I'm at a point in my monthly cycle, which means I'm very prone to crying um, at everything. I don't know what your excuse is. (laughs) Are you going to use the cycle card or is that? Unfortunately, I'm at a fairly uh, sane part of my cycle. So I think the four bouts of crying I did during both American girl in Paris parts was just down to the raw the raw nub of my emotional virginity when it comes to this show every time it's like the first time (laughs) every time it's a surprise (laughs) I'm exactly the same and truly like I can't believe that I I even think this has to be said at this point in our like (laughs) coming on to 20 hours of discussing this show incredibly sincerely but I do think that particularly those last two episodes, but really just like the whole last half of this series, I just don't think that there is a step wrong. I think everything is tied up so well and I appreciate it more and more and more the older I get and the more that I watch it. It's a masterpiece. A masterpiece. Uh, it's, It's so weird because you often speak to people who are like, oh yeah, the last series though. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> I just, I, I think it's, what the it's fuck so... are you talking about? Get your fucking head <laughs> checked, mate. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck are you on about, you idiot? <laughs> but you know, these are some of my favourite parts of the show. I, th- I think it's because they're, they're the least joke heavy episodes they're the least frenetic they're the most grounded I think and I think it's really interesting with Sex and the City where there's if we imagine a bar chart where there's sort of two lines and one of them is realism and the other is fantasy they always spike in tandem so Mm. when the when the storylines get extremely real whether it's Charlotte's miscarriage Samantha's cancer Um, Miranda and uh, Mary Brady and her dementia storyline when they get real the glamour also goes up with it so when when Samantha has cancer she also has cancer and a movie premiere and I think the marrying of reality and glamour is one of the most genius things about this show do you know what I think is even more genius than this show Mm. you I've never thought of that before and you've never said that to me before, but uh, you're completely right. And it is like, yeah, it's this really 
perfect balance that somehow the one offsets the other and one kind of forgives the other and one allows the other and it's what makes you it's it's what makes it so compelling to watch I think and also you know these are the Russian years and Ugh. it's the end of the show it's winter and it's the winter of this content <laughs> oh Caroline <laughs> to say that all day I was like oh my god Sentimental and City is coming to the end it's the winter of this content <laughs> Carrie has well and truly passed the baton straight on to another Carrie so here we are sadly final season breakdown of Sex and the City this is not going to be an episode by episode analysis if you're after an episode by episode analysis Juno Dawson does one on a podcast called So I Got to Thinking which we love this is not a judgement or a breakdown of the more problematic elements of the show although we will talk about them if they come up this is not a place where we roll our eyes about things that people have already rolled their eyes about before This is not going to be jam-packed with trivia, but if you're interested in trivia, we recommend the book Sex and the City and Us by Jennifer Keeshan Armstrong. We are interested in stepping back and looking at each season as an individual piece of work, looking at the themes, character journeys, lasting messages of it, and discussing it and appreciating it for the great American novel it truly is. One last time with feeling, Caroline. We don't know the most about Sex and the City, but... We feel the most about sex in the city. <laughs> oh, I'm getting really sentimental. I never really thought of that as a catchphrase when we came up with it, but now it's um, you know, it's just written on my heart. I might have to get a tattoo. You know, when you say catchphrase, j- j- just you and I say it, but that's still fine. <laughs> if two people say it, a catchphrase it makes. I truly think that when the world opens up again, we're going to have people coming up to us in the street saying that they don't know the most about Sex in the City, but they feel the most. You're going to be asked to record TikTok videos with strangers, and I, I see that happening for you. <laughs> so we talked about great American novels, and in part one, we talked about how the first half of the season was all about the difference between growth and compromise, and what is the sort of you know, healthy, mature, you know, putting away of childish things when it comes to finding a partner for life and accepting the tougher things in life. And what is compromise? What is, you know, what is putting yourself in a box for someone? What is restraining yourself? And I do think that this this second half of the series, it really answers all those questions, you know? I feel like all of the, like, I was getting very sentimental, of course, um, a little earlier on when I finished watching it, when I realised that um, what the show mirrors, and probably, I imagine if I were to watch any other show as intensely as I watch this one, I would find a similar thing, mm. which is it's a Wizard of Oz journey. Mm. It always is, mm. right? It's mm. like we start off with these characters and they're looking to find something that they think will complete them. And... You know, with Dorothy, it's the wizard. And with all these women, it's they think it's going to be with men, right? They think it's going to be... Gonna, the wizard is the men in their life. But it's, you know, obviously, as in The Wizard of Oz and with this show, it's never the thing that someone gives to you. It's the thing that you find yourself. Yeah. And I think... I really tracked this through these last few episodes. I think Charlotte finds grit... And I think that's something that begins when she sort of, she leaves Trey, she fights the whole divorce battle, rather erroneously. (laughs) If you listen to last week's, makes no sense, but whatever. 
you know, she converts to Judaism. And I do think that, like, she finds something within that religion and within her sort of, like, attendant obsession with Elizabeth Taylor that she finds an amazing amount of grit that wasn't present in her. Tin Man Miranda finds her heart. The, the cowardly lion Samantha finds courage in that she, she sort of puts away the drag queen persona mm. that she's invented for herself over these years. And then she's able to, you know, find the courage to, to really love somebody, you know, and to be vulnerable and to be all these things. And Carrie, as, as she does, sitting on that museum bench in Paris, finds herself. She clicks her red heels and she realises home was within her all along. I completely agree with you. When Caroline wrote those notes on the dock, she also wrote underneath, just made myself cry with that. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a beautiful parallel. I think you're completely right. And I think that the American novel that we proposed in part one does grow and continue in the second part. And it's paid off with that final line of the whole show, which is basically there are lots of different relationships in your life that will enrich you. But the one that is there forever and that will sustain you forever is the one that you have with yourself. And if you can find someone who loves the version of you that you love, then that's wonderful. And really where this idea of compromise and how much we should compromise for love and how much we should change and move and accommodate for love it's all about that that final parting message and really that's that's what this entire show has been about they wrap it up so neatly it's about how do you invite these men in your life how do you fall in love how do you build families how do you build homes how do you build futures um with these men while also retaining a rock solid sense of self self-protection um loyalty to who you are how do you fall in love without abandoning yourself basically that's what it's all about this whole show isn't it why don't you take us through the big stories of this half of the season the big stories are carrie and the russian charlotte and harry wanting a baby wanting to find a way to have a family samantha being diagnosed with cancer and that coinciding with her first real steady long-term loving relationship that we've ever seen her in Miranda versus Brooklyn by which we mean Miranda merging her life with another merging her life Mm. with Steve and his family um, and his desires and watching Miranda who has been so self-sufficient and so autonomous um, branch out and grow and and merge with someone else and then I would argue that there is a subplot I'm going to call Steve and literature, which I'll touch on a couple of times uh, as we go through this, which is Steve's relationship to books. <laughs> You're obsessed with this. You really think that this is like, this is the thing. Yeah. This is, this is like me in the dogs, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I think we should talk about This House Believes in terms of the Russian mm. stuff, do you know what I mean? I feel like we should just let, lay, lay our cards on the table because Caroline and I basically are on the same page with almost everything in life. Emotionally, politically, taste-wise, 
there are two things we disagree on. The first is Caroline thinks it's not weird if someone watches your Instagram stories immediately but doesn't like any of your posts. <laughs> Whereas I think it is a form of actual abuse if someone does that. <laughs> um, and the other... We've had an argument so many times, it gets so heated. It gets so heated. It gets so heated. Um, it's a form of abuse. It is. And the other place where we diverge is the Russian. And I don't think we're ever really going to see eye to eye on it. No, no. It's it's very strange because our, so our Google Doc, where we usually, you know, jot down our notes about what we're going to talk about on this episode, is usually quite a straightforward document. And this week, the document was an absolute civil war. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like me noting down hot things about the Russian and you being like, cool it, get a life. And also, when it, whenever you um, you typed anything mildly sort of like, oh, I quite like the Russian here, me just typing all caps, ha! <laughs> I just find it so strange how hot you find him. Because normally when you're really attracted to someone, I'm normally there with you. Something, I'm just so interested in like the bit of our brain that that is mismatched that means that you are so drawn to Alexander Petrovsky and I don't think I could even sit through 10 minutes of a date with him. Shall I just, shall I make my case now and then you can make the case against him? So we'll just, we'll get it all out of the yeah. way up top so yeah. we don't keep bashing each other yeah. as we go through all these wonderful episodes that we love. Yeah. All right. Okay, So so the top line thing is the basic shallowness of like, international artist, speaks a lot of languages, has had this really rich, interesting life, has like assistance and sort of credibility and and is mysterious and all this. But then it's like he has this sort of like high, high art, very cultured thing. But he also has that kind of Russian edge to him where like he can kill a mouse instantly and he kind of thinks art is bullshit and there's this part where she like meets all his friends and he's like those are not my friends those are my colleagues art is so boring (laughs) it's like fuck me oh my god that's so hot it's so hot that like somebody who's taken that seriously and who does take his work seriously also thinks it's like all bullshit Mm. Um, so that's that's one bit of it. I like. I think I also think that like that is that was so a kind of person that I, when I was a teenager and like dreaming of the sort of exciting life I would have, that would that really occurred to me as being the kind of person that would be in it. Right. And like, and obviously that never happened, and probably shouldn't have happened because I don't think it would have been very good for me. I think if I were Carrie in Paris, I would have stuck around for two and a half years gotten clinical depression, lost my hair, and then had to have, like, my mum come and get me. <laughs> okay. So so I think there's the, there, there's that corner of it. There's the sort of unlived fantasy in my brain sort of thing. I also, first of all, I also, which goes to the thing, I also find him physically so fucking attractive. I find something about, like, quite short men, but are, but, like, with these kind of beautiful old world faces and like he's sort of I love the clothes he wears as well and he's just older and it's just sexy and um and like when he that love scene where like he's sort of kissing the like the bottom of her back through her dress and it's just really slow and really gorgeous and then there's also this through line of like me and you 
and our friend Carrie Bradshaw mm-hmm. have this thing where we rely on our like our patter and our wit and we can be quick in a conversation and we're good at that stuff and we're like able to sort of you and I are able to basically muscle a good conversation out of anyone and there's something very like tantalizing to me about somebody who kind of doesn't have any real time for that sort of just like talking, just shooting breeze and just like talking shite about Studio 54 and all this kind of stuff. And that thing of like, he doesn't like her for her patter or her wit. He just kind of likes her essence and he likes being around her and he likes her smell and he likes the way she dresses and he likes her just aura. And I think there's something very exciting to me about someone who doesn't really give a shit about your like funny wordplay and winter of this content and all kind of shit, <laughs> you know? Okay, weirdly, I now get it a bit more. That bit, I, okay. to- I, to- I do actually completely understand. I am actually a bit more sold because I do think that there's something intriguing about, I get why Carrie, I get why Carrie likes him because uh, Carrie, our friend Carrie is like you and I, that's like she can spin great stories about people in her head. Like, you know, I think she imagines huge amounts of the person who she thinks that she's in love with. So if you if you have someone like him who is so extreme in so many ways, it's like so caricatured in so many ways. He's Russian. He's cold. He's had many lovers. He's got you know an angular young Anthony Hopkins face. He wears velvet. His house is like all crittle doors and heavy velvet drapes, and he serves caviar. And yeah, I get like I can see why. And she- he has his own stationery. Yeah, he has his own stationery, he has his own staff and he's, you know, he's straight talking and he's unknowable. And if you're someone who likes stories, you could very easily like let yourself get swept away with that. So I get why she likes him. Through this rewatch, I was just like, I don't get why he fancies her because constantly throughout their relationship it seems like they don't know these huge things about each other he didn't know her age after three months <laughs> she didn't know he had a child after three months but they're hanging out constantly and they seem to talk a lot so what is it they're talking about he doesn't seem to laugh at her jokes he doesn't like blither and she's like a real blitherer what is it but I think you're totally right. I think it's about... And she kind of says that, doesn't she? When she's like, we've got nothing in common. And I do think there is something powerful about the fact that it is a chemical, hormonal, spiritual, essence thing that just means that he feels very drawn to her. Now I get it. I can see why that would be appealing. Yes, and I also think... I think, you know, ultimately he's wrong for her, obviously. And... uh and he doesn't act well. I don't think he's a perfect love interest. He's just the one I find the most exciting. Um, and I think as well, there's this thing of, because when you see them together, it's so relaxed. Like in when they're still in New York together and, you know, they're hanging out in this flat and she's always just like reading a magazine on a gorgeous couch while he's just like reading his art magazine and like stroking her leg. And we've never really seen her like that with people. It's always like very like, oh, jumpy, jumpy, okie dokie, daddy doody. Like yeah. all this like, and I just think for that character in those, in those scenes and in that, in those kind of months of that relationship, that must, that sort of level of relaxation and comfort and like not feeling like you have to impress someone all the time because you've already established quite early on they're not that impressed by your blither, you know? Mm. She seems to find a real 
ease there that ultimately doesn't work out long term. But I can see why it's so lovely for her in those. It must have been like after, especially after fucking Jack Burger as well. Yeah, this incredibly insecure man where it's like this hamster wheel going all the time. You know, it must be lush to just sit around and have a man really fancy you and just think you're kind of amusing. You know. Yeah, you've sold me a bit, a bit more. He's just. I think there's, there's like, it's just the mischief thing for me. I think it's just like there's a total lack of. Uh, silliness or self-awareness in that character that I find just like so repulsive like I find it so difficult to get horny for men like that but he puts a banana in her purse (laughs) Caroline I'll tell you I'll tell you there's one moment re-watching it where I was just like ooh fit which is the first moment that he meets her where she is wearing that amazing handkerchief lilac asymmetric Mm. dress she looks so beautiful with her hair in that low bun her and charlotte are at his gallery and gorgeous charlotte um after six seasons shows an interest in art for the first time (laughs) some may say a a, a little bit too late (laughs) it's so funny it's so clear like Oh, like, we're going to make her this artist boyfriend and how is she going to meet him? Oh, of course, Charlotte. Charlotte is art, kind of. You know, it's the first time she ever seems vaguely interested by it and we get any sense. You know, it's so funny. Um, But he comes over and Charlotte starts fangirling him saying, I love your work and blah, blah, blah. And he just does this really hot thing where he just signals at her to stop talking. And I did think then, oh, I'd quite like you to do that to me. (laughs) Yeah. Oh. All right. See, so she, so she gets it. I get it so, now. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I was too judgmental. I do get it. You judged me. I still don't want him round the fire pit. No. No. Nor do I. Nor do I. I would never bring him to the fire pit. Good. Because Gavin is there. So. <laughs> In another world where Gavin doesn't exist as your boyfriend, mm. and the Russian is your man at the fire pit. The idea of me contemplating people to take on holiday for him to make small talk with by the fire pit is absolutely terrifying to me. (laughs) Absolutely terrifying. Will he get along with Alexander? No, Alexander gets along with nobody. (laughs) Just that it's not a fire pit, it's an inferno, you know. (laughs) It's Dante's fire pit. Okay, so shall we start where we left off last season uh, with episode 11, The Domino Effect, which is where Big comes crashing back into New York with uh, heart problems. He's here for open heart surgery. And um, Carrie spends the entire episode sort of like bursting into very fake tears. Yeah. What do you think about the tears? It's just that. What I find so weird about it is that Sarah Jessica Parker is this really good actress and so the, the tears are just very fake it reminds me of like the season finale of Friends when they're all pretending to cry while they hand in their keys to Monica's apartment <laughs> and it's so like why aren't you guys better at this this is so bad <laughs> but I think the most interesting thing in this episode is I do think it's very cleverly done about the fact that he had heart surgery and Mm. she goes to nurse him and there's just this one night where he finally 
is vulnerable enough to have this open heart. And yeah. he tells her, basically it's what we said a few episodes ago, which is you see this character, Mr. Big, in a prolonged midlife crisis from the pilot until about episode 17 of this series. And and him facing mortality with this surgery episode is kind of him facing his greatest fear, the thing that's been propelling all of his relationship decisions for the last six years, which is, I think, as you said, I've got to keep moving. I can't stand still. If I stand still, I might die. Mm. And and what's so great is that, that that character realizing that when he does stand still, that there's one person who's there for him. Mm. They have this, this wonderful conversation that feels so earned. And it makes, I think it makes most people cry every time they watch it, right? If they're into this show at all. Which is this thing of like, you know, it's played so well with her coming into his hotel as a, a candy striper and it's all very sweet. And also the fact that, and I only picked that up on, on this rewatch, which was she knows he's in the Four Seasons because and that's how she found him. He didn't tell her where she was staying, where he was staying. And she just knows because she knows him and mm. she comes with the candy striper outfit and she's doing her patter and her little characters and they always sort of play characters together. And they have this night and then he has a kind of, um, you know, he has a reaction to the surgery. She does the whole cold compresses. She calls the doctor. She falls asleep next to him. And and that moment where he just says, you know, what are we what are we doing? And it's like the first like really vulnerable conversation those two characters have ever had. Despite yeah. the fact that they've been this huge people in each other's lives. And, and that thing the next morning where it's just like... and. And Big's heart had closed again. It's just so, oh, it's so well done. Me too. So well done because she wakes up and she looks at him staring at the ceiling. So you can tell that he is having a fucking freak out about that moment of vulnerability the night before. And she says, how do you feel? And he replies, like myself again. And then, so the barriers are back up. She thought she could reach in and touch him and speak to him and connect to him just for one moment one night and then the carapace appears again and he kind of recoils from her she touches him again he kind of recalls and says I'm fine goes to the bathroom and I think this is like maybe the most pivotal moment in their relationship is that her reaction is she doesn't do what she did in series one and series two which is like freak out and throw a fucking burger a beautiful fillet of fish burger that should never be thrown it should never be wasted, those burgers, thrown across the room. She doesn't scream. She doesn't shout. She doesn't, you know, interrogate him. She just has this, you know, the scales really do fall finally, I think, where she recognises this is who he is. It's never going to change. It hasn't changed. If he gets that vulnerable and that close to the truth, and even after that conversation, the next day he still can't move it forward She's mm. flogging a dead horse. So then she says, breezily, what do you want to order for breakfast? She orders yeah. breakfast for him. She stands up. She walks along the floor. Some dominoes fall. And that is the big moment that sets her free to fall in love and find someone to properly spend her life with. Yeah, It's the huge turning point, I think. Yes, and I, I completely agree. And I won't like echo everything you just said, but what I do love about the scene and this is this might be way too much sort of PhD student getting a bit 
high on their own supply, but... You never have to say that to me, honey, you know. <laughs> I don't know why I would add that now. Um, it's like, oh, Dolly, by the way, do you want to do this podcast together? I do get a bit intense about this show. <laughs> But the fa- so the thing of the dominoes in the previous scene, which is um, she's setting up all these dominoes and he's like sort of dictating to her about sort of spacing and curvature and all this thing. And he's being really, you know, pernickety and it has to be this very precise thing. And then he gets out of bed in the morning. He kicks over some dominoes and, you know, a dozen of them fall, but they don't hit the middle. And then she gets out of bed and kicks some dominoes and a dozen of them fall and they don't hit the middle. Yeah. And just this thing of like, with these characters, it's all about time, timing and spacing and how much time and how much space they have. It doesn't matter how much there is, they will never meet in the middle. And she yeah. just gives up in that moment, yeah. you know? Yeah. And it's such clever, clever staging that I wonder if they even knew what they were doing, but it's just perfect. And it's so satisfying on a rewatch, you know? I totally agree. And it's the information that you need to be armed with to make sense of all of the rest of her decisions, the rest of the series, why she finally feels ready to move on with her life. You know, that moment where she has the argument with Miranda in, I think, episode 18, where she says, everyone's moving on. Even Samantha's moved on. Charlotte's yeah. moved on. You're going to Brooklyn. Charlotte having babies. Miranda's fallen in love. It's time for me to move on. And really, yes, she's talking about, she's talking about the Russian there, but really I think she's talking about big... And as how synonymous Big is with New York. She doesn't want to stay yeah. in New York and be someone who writes about, you know, you know, circumventing this man and speculating on this man and thinking about this man and asking questions about this man. She wants to move on to the next stage. And I think that falling of the dominoes is the thing that finally allows her to, to move into this new phase of her life. Yes. Yes. Ugh. We're not going to spend too much time on these early episodes because there's so much to get to in the Paris episodes. But episode 12, one, is a big one um, in that it's Charlotte's miscarriage. It's the famous Samantha's big orange bush. And it's Miranda and Steve getting back together. It's a big one. And it's also Robert and the cookie, which I really need to get to oh the bottom God. of. It's so weird. It makes no sense with that character, I think. I don't think so. He would say, so. I love you on a massive weird cookie. I don't think so. And also that cookie looks like one of the ones you get on Tottenham Court Road. Ben's cookie. Yeah, it doesn't look... I hate a Ben's cookie. <laughs> <laughs> There's so a thing that like in a certain era of office work, people would get a batch of when someone was leaving and they were always shit. I just love that I never know what statements are going to come out in these podcasts. I hate a Ben's cookie. Yeah, it's very weird, that cookie. Do you think it's just that someone had a funny story about they heard of a friend who in the writer's room? Yeah. And they just probably like the idea of Miranda just stuffing the I love you in her mouth to, to make it go away. That is the thing. It has become like very iconic that her stuffing the cookie in her mouth and... Uh, it's 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 always one of the gifts that come up of Sex and the City when you search it. And I don't get, like, I just don't understand why that character would do that. I feel like it's so, it's like this explicitly cool man doing the most uncool thing. <laughs> um, but my I think my favourite thing about this episode is Charlotte and the miscarriage mm. and the, the her, her sort of just being 
home alone watching Eat Hollywood Story of Elizabeth Taylor and her getting strength from that. I just, I love Charlotte's Elizabeth Taylor arc so much. I do. And I, is it, is it about, I've been thinking about why Elizabeth Taylor is so important to, to Charlotte. Obviously she, Charlotte looks like a mid-century Hollywood icon. Like she looks like a bit like Elizabeth Taylor. She dresses like Elizabeth Taylor. She's got that very kind of classic feminine Hollywood beauty. Um, there's obviously that conversion similarity that she converted to Judaism mm. for Eddie Fisher. But I wonder if it is about the balance between Elizabeth Taylor famously being very caught up in the in the trappings of things, in money and in and with jewelry and um with high profile husbands and with flash basically flashy exciting things mm. juxtaposed with someone who had to deal with a huge amount of emotional turmoil and mess i think so and i think what it is as well this is something i've talked about on this podcast before in the meaning of mariah carey episode that we did which is that and i really believe it i think everybody is born under a diva star and I think, I think everybody has a. That's the that's the purpose of divas in our life. It's the purpose of your Dolly Partons and your Barbara Streisands and your Diana Rosses or whatever, like that. They you are born under a diva star in the same way that you're born under a horoscope, and they are people that even though nobody would ever say, oh, doesn't you know, doesn't Dolly remind you of Madonna or whatever somebody you feel at the very in your secret like nerdy dweeby heart that you have an emotional connection with and part of that is to do with they represent some tiny fragment of yourself writ large or and they also occupy a thing of like oh a, a way I would love to act or a way I would love to be mm. but I can't be because I'm a real person mm. and I think when you find your diva and particularly in like very hard periods of your life as Charlotte is, I think those things, those like moments of just like watching their each Hollywood story or listening to their records or watching their movies become these moments of empowerment for you. Mm. And like, I just, I, I, I love that that is dealt with and it, I don't think you'd find it on any other show, you know? I totally agree with you. And I definitely have found in my most wobbly moments in life, I gravitate towards women who are known for their witticism and truisms and who are very forthright about what they believe. Do you remember last year when I was having a bit of a difficult time and mm. I was with you and I was reading that Claudia Winkleman book and I was just completely obsessed with it and I couldn't get my head out of it? Yeah. It completely saved me during a wobbly few days and it, I'm sure it is because that book is just a woman very bossily telling you exactly how to live your life. <laughs> I found it <laughs> so reassuring. Proximity to yeah. women who seem to have, as you said, like a very sure idea of what makes a good life and what makes you happy and what you should demand of life does feel just like very soothing in dodgy times, I think. Yeah. I find that, I, I find the same way about um, Sex and Single Girl by Helen Gurley Brown and yes. the other kind of like very didactic women being like if you want to get a man you simply can never yeah. you know wear ostrich with satin yeah. <laughs> and you're like don't wear ostrich or satin babe but I love this <laughs> it's it's like medicinal isn't it it's like it's why Nora yeah. Ephron's essays are so you know it's such a flooded market and her essays are so 
famousness because she is the person saying, this is what you should eat, this is who you should marry, this is how you should live your life. Whether you agree with yeah. it or not, yeah. it's just, it's it's reassuring, as you said. It's so good. And before we move on, I have to ask you what diva star you've been born under. Gemma Collins. <laughs> <laughs> really? Um, no, probably Dolly Parton. I'm pretty obsessed with Dolly Parton. Yeah. Who's yours? Cher. Oh, I was considering Cher. Yeah. Love, fucking love Cher. I love Cher. Love her music, love what she's about. Love how sure she is of everything she does. Love that she's kind of a witch, you know? It's just, all of it's great. Tell you what I love. I love, I love how rich she is. I love how rich she is. Yeah. I love how rich she is and how weird looking she is and she doesn't care. I think that's that's the thing with Dolly Parton and with Cher is that they're really talented and they look fucking weird. Yeah. Yeah. And do you know what it is with Cher and Dolly Parton that that they both have is... That sense of they know what to take seriously and what not to take seriously. And the majority of things, including themselves, they don't take seriously. And then there are a couple of causes or issues that they really, really do take seriously. And I think that's just the most gorgeous quality in a human. Yeah, it's so hot. So hot. But I do think, I know that we've had a long conversation about the Russian already, but she does meet him in this episode. And you've made a very, very pertinent note here that I love, which is just realized Petrovsky would know Fran Leibovitz and I bet they would have a huge rift and she would be asked about it at every live event. (laughs) Do you agree? I agree. I agree. They definitely know each other. Yeah. Fran Leibovitz and yeah. Yeah. And she'd never explicitly say what happened, but in every interview when she'd be asked, she'd be like, I don't like him. I don't like the guy. But she like wouldn't really get into what went down. I just don't like him. <laughs> oh my god, you're so good. He was when I when I was coming up. He was there in Studio Fifty Four. I was there in Studio Fifty Four. We talked. I didn't like him. <laughs> so good. Oh my god. Okay, sorry. The hottest moment from him in this episode is when they go for their very weird one a.m. dinner. Yeah. Which is just so, so dreamlike and strange and she eats all the weird food. and I do love it. I love, I think that date's, I I would be so up for that date. It's so cool and weird and odd. Yeah. And then they, um, oh, he walks her to her door and he tells the cab driver to wait in Russian and he gives him like a 50 and the, the cab driver waits down the road and they have this like really sexy kiss. And he's like, you know, I live very nearby. And he goes, she goes, oh, I thought you lived downtown. And he's like, downtown is nearby. Sorry, these are offensive accents and I'm sorry, but I have to do them. <laughs> I'm I'm just dreading the Paris years when we get to those accents. <laughs> um, and so they sort of have this really hot kiss. And uh, he just goes, ah, not tonight, huh? And he's just like, oh, I just find it so hot. I don't know. Am I, have I lost you again? <laughs> no, it is hot. I wonder whether really... I was just imagining you and Gavin in a role-play situation. <laughs> whether Gav would would don the velvet blazer and the Russian accent, or which is sounding a little bit like the meerkat in the advert at the moment, but... <laughs> I think you have some, not my best. some time, not my Steve, have some time you know? to, to perfect it. Or, and whether you would like that, or whether actually when faced with Gav pretending to be the Russian, you would realise, oh, I want to be the Russian. 
Oh my god, maybe I do want to be the Russian. I think oh, there it's might a be a full circle moment. I think there might be a bit of penis envy going on here. I think you want to throw a 50 at a cab driver. <gasps> yeah. Dolly, it's very early in the podcast for an epiphany of this size. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that's what could be going on? You're so right. Yeah. I want to be an internationally famous artist with a stupid little girlfriend. I think that's what it is. Wow. I think you should take over for a minute while I reel. (laughs) (laughs) We need to get you the velvet smoking jacket and we need to get Gavin the little lilac handkerchief dress. Oh my God. I can't believe how right you are. (laughs) This session has cost £50. (laughs) I will give you my PayPal details. I want to be the Russian. We've all been there, babe. I've honestly had moments with men where I'm like, oh, there's something I'm so like, oh, I'm so, there's a magnetism. I just feel like drawn to you, but I find you really annoying. I hate you and your power is so appealing to me, but it's so repulsive. And then I just think, oh, no, I don't want to fuck you. I want to be you. That is huge, huge. Okay, so with that in mind, who is your penis envy crush of the series then? Oh, that's a good question. I think probably Walker Lewis. I love that we've mentioned him like four times and no one will know who he is. <laughs> well, actually, someone pointed out in my DMs the other day being like, you know, he's very famous, don't you? He's a very famous actor. And I was like, don't care. He's Walker Lewis. <laughs> Walker Lewis is the one who Miranda sleeps with when she's in the very early stages of pregnancy with Brady, which Caroline and I were weirdly judgmental about. And <laughs> there's something about him and the way he the way he snaps his fingers and Miranda jumps and the way he's so assertive, but he's so tender. He looks like a sort of master manipulator of women. That looks very appealing to me. I'd love to know what yeah. that was like. Episode 13 is Let There Be Light. Probably everyone will remember it for the lover discourse. Very cringy, very annoying. I've taken a lover. It does prove that she is just like so in her head about this one. Mm. She's just like whittling and cobbling away at the fantasy of that, like she's just building him, you know? She's just like so busy building this story in her head rather than properly engaging with who he is, I think. Oh, that's really smart. You are full of the insights tonight. Gotta say, very wowed by your intellect this evening. No, you're totally right. This whole, she's building a concept around him and she is sort yeah. of like, you know, fetishizing the sort of his foreignness and his strangeness and his artisticness and his money and his Europeanness and it's like all coming together in this very old world sort of Anna Karenina sort of thing for her and you're so you're so right she she's, she's just making up the story without his consent really <laughs> yeah it's without his consent he's sort of absent isn't he in a yeah, way he's in like Holland yeah exactly <laughs> and it is you you are right I mean, I hate to be on his side again, and you really are talking me around, but you are right with the Russian uh, and Carrie and his sexuality in their sex scenes that he, it feels very different, the seduction, the physicality mm. of them together feels very different to 
other sex scenes in Sex and the City. He d- he does feel like a lover <laughs> to uh, adopt their horrible parlance. It does feel like he's very tender and slow moving with her um, in a way that feels different to that those kind of fast paced neurotic American men that she we've seen her with. Yes, particularly when you think of this woman has just had a year of horrible shags. Yeah. Awful, awful shag. So this kind of tender, sort of lovingness. It reminds me a lot of one of my favourite books called Le Divorce by Diane Johnson. And it's uh, about a young American girl who goes to Paris to have sex with an incredibly old man. And and she talks about like, you know, people say it was inappropriate, the age difference, but the age difference was part of it for me. I felt like I was fucking God. And I see that in this Mm. too, you know? This mm. thing of like she I think she does feel like she's having sex with God himself, you know? Yeah, and I do think that there is a type of sex that you have where you're very in your body and you're very present and you're very much connecting with someone and as we know that is like the best sex that humans can have. But there is also another type of very fun sex, which is observing the two of you as a duo and the contrast between you. Oh, absolutely. This whole thing of like it's not just the sex, but it's the look at us in this room and me in this dress and you in that. And it's like, it's, I think women can sometimes have sex with themselves as film directors. Do you know what I mean? Where they're just like, they're looking at the whole scene and it's a big part of female sexuality that can be very confusing sometimes. Yeah, totally. It's, and it's also so unexplored, obviously, because again, without sounding too nauseating uh, media PhD student about it all because we don't really see things through the female gaze. We certainly don't see sex through the female gaze often. And that is like, I think story can be such a huge part of that. And that's definitely a massive part of this sexual connection, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I do think this comes back to lots of conversations you and I have when we're writing fiction, which is that like we both of us find it such a cop out when novelists don't write about the sex and the sex life of their of their characters. Like you need to know the tenor of what kind of sex that person is having. If you want to know, you need to know how they feel about their mother and you need to know how they feel about sex. Otherwise, you don't know anything about them. I think the same if you're being asked to invest in any kind of a couple. You need to know what that sex is like, you know, and you need to know, you don't need to see it, but you need the cues to know what it's like, you know. And, and I do think they do that very well with the Russian. And I'm going to stop talking about him now because there's more to talk about in this episode, but there's one bit with him I absolutely love in this as well where she kind of, she sort of, goes to him and she's feeling a bit anxious and she's interrupting him while he's welding something together, which I also find fit. And he's like... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, come on. As if you're like... As if you wouldn't fall for a guy in a welding hat in his big studio. Get a grip. Those silly lights. I like them. (laughs) Sorry. You carry on, my darling. And he says, you know, I just like you. And and that's why I come back to the thing of like, you know, he just likes her for her kind of essence and for yeah. who she is. And and then and then she goes, you know, why me? And he's like, well, why me? You know, and, and it, this it's this thing where it like punctures this fantasy she's built of him in her head. And he's just like and he's doing the like, I'm just a guy standing in front of a girl asking mm. to make large scale light installations quietly while she waits to be fucked by me. What's Yeah. What's the deal, lady? <laughs> You're so right. And it is really telling because it's like her career has been about 
joining dots with these men, mm. creating a story, working out who they are, working out their motivations, working out what their character is and what their little name is and how she fits into their life and what the kind of the root of their connection is. And this is a relationship that kind of just obliterates all that. I think really, though, this is Samantha's episode for me in terms of who's carrying the emotional weight of this episode. Yes, this is Samantha having a freak out that she's falling in love and not wanting to commit, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so it's it's Samantha, you know, having this sort of... Um, this moment of distance from Smith where he she sort of thinks he's too young and too naive and, you know, too much of a kid still. And she's, and she's kind of quite clearly jealous of Carrie and the Russian and the sort of like old school masculinity that she's beginning to miss because it's what she's used to and it's how she's used to getting that certain degree of validation. And while she goes to a party with Smith, she runs into Richard and he does the whole thing that we all dream about, which is, you know, God, I went and fucked up the best thing I ever had. Looking great, Jonesy. <laughs> I feel like I've waited so long for an ex to say that. Specifically for an ex to say that in front of a new love interest. Oh my God. To, to lecture the new love interest on how much he messed up and how lucky the new love interest is. And yet, every time I bump into them, it's just a bit of, sort of fucking small talk about council tax. <laughs> No, you know it's so I mean? disappointing. Why has it, it never happened? Why does it never happen? It's awful. <laughs> I feel like we were really promised that would happen at least once in our lives and it never happened. And I feel really bummed out about it. I'm so angry about it. <laughs> and now they've and now they've all got kids. So it's not like they're gonna say it now, is it? Because <laughs> all they're gonna talk about is their fucking kids. Very grim. Very grim. And I feel like, and I genuinely, there are some men in my address book who I really was the best thing that ever happened to them. So they really should be saying it. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> why, why aren't they all saying it? Why aren't they not waiting for the bump in? Why aren't they ringing us to say it? Why isn't there a Reddit thread that's just forward slash R regret breaking up with Caroline? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what I've been wondering for a few months now. I've looked for it. It's not there. <laughs> I just find that very weird. <laughs> that there's no Reddit thread? Yeah. <laughs> very weird. We should look into that. I will, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll look into it. I'll search with all spellings of my name just in case. You know, with the apostrophe, without the apostrophe. Um, but she goes, <laughs> she goes upstairs and she has sex with Richard and it's the most depressing and upsetting sex scene in the show's entire run, I think. It is, isn't it? It's really... And the fact that it's so thrown away makes it even darker, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's For anyone who can't remember, it's it's Richard. He's having sex with her from behind and he's kind of muttering about how unsuccessful he is and how he's lost everything. And, he, and, and Samantha's just completely dead behind yeah. the eyes it's really horrible and I think the voiceover says uh, Richard may never have been this low but Samantha hadn't either or something and it is very strange to see that character Samantha in a sex scene where she's not entirely in control and having a really good time 
Yeah, yeah, and, and just full of regret, of instant regret. And and it's this thing as well as like that 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 moment that you and I have been waiting for and I think we'll go on waiting for for the rest of our lives, which is, you know, someone coming up to us when we're out with our gorgeous boyfriend and saying, you know, I, I went up went and screwed it up and lost the best thing I ever had. That when he finally get when he gets her, when he like traps her in this hotel room. He's not having sex with her. He's having sex with himself two years ago. When yeah, he was exactly. still riding high. And we don't really know exactly what happened, but he, he seems like a sort of a slightly desperate man. And maybe it's kind of... Because there is a few sort of reflections on the economy in this... Mm. Um, in these later episodes. So maybe it's this kind of implication that he's been hit badly by the crash or maybe there's been less travel because of 9-11. But basically Richard's not doing well, whatever is happening. And he's just sort of using her as a puppet and it's not seductive or about her at all. And it never was. And she sees that and this is, she she always thought of this man as being sort of her equal and someone who saw her for who she was. And then to not be really looked at or thought of at all is such a crushing, crashing thing to be brought down to. And then there's the scene where she comes back down the lift and she looks like someone who's been violated from the look of her on her face, you know, even Mm. though it was consensual. And the doors open and Smith is just sitting there waiting for her. Tiny baby chick. He's a tiny baby chick. Because he knows her so well at that point and he knows that that was her acting out because she was feeling vulnerable rather than trying to hurt him. That's a real turning point, isn't it, in the Smith-Samantha relationship? Because that going back to Richard, who's probably been in her head, her great love in the time that we've known her, she realises that this new thing that she has with this very new person is actually much closer to what love should feel like. Episode 14 is The Ick Factor, which includes Miranda's proposal and wedding and Samantha's cancer. So it was a big one. I think everybody loves Miranda and Steve generally, but I think Miranda and Steve are at their peak in this season. Because I think there's a real sense in this season after, you know, Brady's birthday party and they realise they really do want to be together and both of them dump extremely hot people to be together. (laughs) Yeah, there's this real sense of joy that they sort of can't believe they've been given the second chance at love with each other, and it's so joyous, which is so something we rarely see from Miranda. This her her ability to just be able to like just love so fully, and them just sort of like sitting at that pub outside with their beers, just having a laugh, and she proposes to him, and it's so like it's so fitting and so joyful, and then like them finding the sort of community garden that they get married in is just, it's all just so perfect and I just love it. I love it. And I think that it is an amazing payoff to one of your best ever realisations about this show and its themes, which is Miranda and the natural world. And I may well have scoffed when this was first brought up in series two, but rewatching these episodes, I realise that it must have been planted it must have been planted. Oh my God. I am living rent free in your head. <laughs> I really do. I really do think that the writers intended to thread this through because seasonality plays a very big part in this series. Mm. When she's 
with the Russian, it's obviously all very cold and there's a lot of snow and it's about, you know, things being stripped back and it's about them getting older and then, you know, she comes back to herself and then it ends in the spring and it's about newness and and all the respective adventures that they all have, new adventures they have ahead. But I think that there's something really poignant about how autumn is used in this episode. It begins Mm. with them sitting having their beers and the Carrie voiceover saying, you know, it was one of those perfect autumn days and they're just relaxed and they're mellowed. They are mellowed like the very fruit and leaves of autumn. (laughs) This is becoming too much even for Carrie. Harvest time. And they're talking about, I don't want to be... They're talking about their bad habits in previous years. I don't want to be this sort of girlfriend. Well, I don't want to be this sort of boyfriend. And they're just... It's like they have, like, mellowed, like, you know, like they're in the autumn of their relationship, in a way. They're not young, new, green lovers. And The fruit of their love has ripened and is being harvested. (laughs) It is being harvested. It's all about... Mm warmth and these golden leaves and things maturing and I think it's about like the wedding being low-key and them being more relaxed with each other it's about the like maturation of love so it is a conclusion to Miranda and the natural world one of my favorite conversations that we've had in the run-up to this episode is us interrogating every screen grab of this wedding to figure out who the fuck are those people at the wedding the people who are not Charlotte and Harry Samantha and Carrie, Magda and Mary Brady. Who are they? We have some theories. Here are my We have some okay. theories. Yeah, yeah. The, the, you only see the back of their heads, really. But their, their hair colour is very telling. Yes. I think one of them is Miranda's sister, who we met when, in the episode where her mother died, who is played by the same actress who plays Hannah Horvath in Girls' Mother. Uh, whose name escapes me right now, but clearly they couldn't get the same actress again, so they just kind of went for a sort of a wig kind of thing, a wig and a power suit on some extra. She appears to be at the wedding with uh, someone whose back of a head we see, but seems to be a younger woman who has kind of strawberry blonde hair. I'm going to assume that's like a teenage daughter and niece of Miranda's. yes. They're standing with a man. Let's say that's her husband. Okay, we've got those down. It's the other side. It's the other side that is where all the questions are. Miranda and her sister and her family, I am just about able to make out. But there are three other guests who I cannot put a number on. I presume that at least two of them are Steve's brother, Jackie, and his wife. And then there's just a random man. (laughs) Maybe from the law firm? I don't know. But it drives me crazy. It It drives me crazy. And I also... It drives me crazy that that they're not listed in in the credits. <laughs> I was waiting, I was sweating for it, and I was going to work it all out. And it's just, it's they haven't named any of them. It's strange to me that on Miranda's side, it's Magda, her housekeeper, the four friends, and then Steve doesn't seem to have any mates. Yeah, in what world is Harry Goldenblatt coming to Miranda's wedding? But like, Steve has no friends. Not even bloody Aiden Shaw. Yeah, I mean, I think this could all be solved. And I've suggested this to lots of friends before, but for some reason, everyone feels like this is out of the question. I don't believe in plus ones. 
Yes, I, I'm completely with you. Unless you are independently friends with both members of a couple, I don't think yeah. there should be plus ones at a wedding. It's so weird, isn't it? I know so many people who've thrown real hissy fits when their partner isn't invited to a wedding, despite the partner barely knowing the couple or not even met the couple. I, I honestly just, I don't get that at all. I agree. I think it's it's, it's funny because... Something my mom always says to me when we're talking about sort of old school courtship versus now. She always says, you know, me and your father used to go to dances all the time together. We used to get gussied up. We used to go down to like, you know, whatever, the Lions Club on a Friday night when we were in our 30s and have a great time with our friends wearing lovely clothes and dancing. And I'm always like, oh, you know what I mean? And like, I think weddings have replaced that in our society yeah. because because like couples don't go out in that way together anymore and i find that very sad and uh it's like the the one excuse you have to get like guzzied up with your partner you know because most mm. people they reach a point in their life where they're not really going clubbing anymore and even then like going clubbing with your partner you're not going to wear like a formal summer beautiful dress from coast yeah. or whatever you know yeah it's a it's a weird sort of like it's a weird dog show for couples weddings that reception looks so fun, doesn't it? That looks so lunch. good. Yeah. yeah, just like a nice restaurant with fucking good wine and nice canapes and you can leave whenever you want, you know? Majestic. But, oh my God, Mary Brady, just like constantly just sort of nervously cornering Miranda with these weird <laughs> conversations. It's just like, you know, I really admire you for wearing reds, you know, on my... <laughs> On my wedding day, I had a. I was wearing white on the outside, but I had my little Jackie on the inside. <laughs> Do you know the deleted scene that I would just so love to see is like Samantha being cornered by Mary Brady because I think she corners all the friends. <laughs> oh my god, I would love to see that. I feel like Samantha would get the best out of Mary Brady as well. Yes, I agree. Oh, so good. This is also when Samantha is diagnosed with breast cancer and I love how it's plays out in this episode this thing of you know her having this breast exam because she wants to get a boob job you know finding out and then picking up Carrie in the cab uh telling her everything in that really like wonderfully sort of clipped sort of PR lady way that she does it being like look I have cancer I don't want to you know blurt it out da 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 they found some cells they're doing a biopsy. It'll all be good. Okay, fine. Now let's talk about something else. And then she, they just sit there in silence. And then she just strokes her um, scarf thing and just says, do you like my skunk? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's so important that the cancer that the writers chose to give that character is breast cancer. Because obviously any, any cancer is uh, an awful thing for someone to go through. But for that character her femininity and her sexuality is 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 so important to her mm. it's so the kind of anchor of who she is and how she defines herself that it's just this whole other layer of of stuff that she has to process and i think she has that honest moment with Carrie in the in the cab doesn't she where she says i know i'm going to be fine i just don't want to lose my breasts they're fabulous yeah yeah, I love that she says that because I think there is like... Me too. There's this dialogue around cancers of all kinds, but particularly breast cancer, that you're supposed to 
suddenly change into a different person with no vanity and no ego because this very terrible thing has happened to you. But ultimately, like, losing your hair is really hard. Having work done to your breasts is extremely hard. Like, it's very hard for people, you know? And I just love that they didn't shy away from that, you know? I think that the more common thing to do is like have this someone very valiantly say like, I don't care, whatever, do whatever, you know, just as long as I live. And like to have someone still sitting in that sort of insecurity of like, yeah, their looks are important to them. And I, you know, it's, I, I, th- I really love that. And yeah. And like, this is going to sound, um, you know, a little much, but you know, my, my sister was diagnosed with breast cancer two years ago and she is fine now. And I think having a storyline like this happening to somebody who's just in the middle of their life and who's just doing their thing and then very accidentally just comes across this sort of, this, you know, random lump and it's probably nothing and then quickly it snowballs into something and then it it all seems to, suddenly your life is just stuck in a cancer plot that you never planned. Mm. It's just such a common, you know, thing. And I feel like this is people's most common cultural touchstone for breast cancer you know I think people this is who they think about when they think about like you know famous characters or famous people who've gone through it you know it's Samantha Jones and the fact is you said that who she is and what's important to her remains entirely intact they don't try to make her um an angelic cancer martyr she's someone who is still you know rude and difficult to the poor sales assistant in the wig shop she is still someone who is more concerned about making sure that she feels like herself and looks like herself at an event rather than um, the details of her illness at that moment. And I just think that that's, that's actually quite rare to see, to see that cancer story being told. Yeah, yeah, I, I really agree. And this, this great thing, it comes to an amazing resolution where... They're all talking about it at the reception of Miranda's wedding and Miranda comes over and she wants to know about it and they don't want to tell her because they don't want her wedding day to be all about Samantha's cancer. And that beautiful line delivery that Miranda has is just where it's like, Charette says, no, 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 go back to your people. And she goes, no, you are my people and we will talk about it now. Yeah. Makes me cry at the end of that episode. Yeah. And she says, start talking. And then Samantha just starts giving her the details. And it just, it... Yeah, it just pulls it out. It zooms out. And it's a, it's a really quiet and Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I just love these women. <laughs> I'm so sad that we're running out of time with them. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we talk about Catch 38? Where I think things with the... Russian really heat up and some incredibly interesting conversations around babies and fertility and how like there's this great line that happens in this where she says it's too early in the relationship to have this conversation with him but it's too late in my life not to which I think sums up this whole episode really yeah and it sums up so much of dating for women in that period of life I think you know, it is yeah. It is really scary to know that that you have this window of time 
that, as we've said before, I think is larger often than than we're scaremongered into thinking that it is. And obviously, it, you know, differs wildly from woman to woman, but it, it it is a window that you do have to be aware of. But then equally, it it does feel it feels just as scary to 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 bring that to someone's door at the beginning of a relationship. It's a lot of emotional navigation that women have to do that men don't really have to think about. Yeah, yeah. And and this thing of like they're looking after Brady because Miranda's on her honeymoon and you know, the Russian is being lovely with Brady and it's all very nice and he goes, you know, when when were you planning to do this? How old are you? 38? And she's like, okay. <laughs> I hate that bit. It, re- it really annoys you that he doesn't know how old she is. It does annoy me. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't want to lie around drinking up each other's essence, reading <laughs> magazines. I want to have a conversation. I want to know how old someone is. I want to know that if I have a child. I don't, is that asking for the moon on a stick at this point? I don't think it is. I just don't think you're... I think what it is is that maybe you're not as um, like chill and elegant as I am and you can't drink up essence in the same way. I was... Yeah, may, maybe you're more of a sensual essence drinker than I am. And, I, and I'm more just sort of neurotic in my head. Where did you grow up? What's your star sign sort of vibe? That's it. Maybe that's what we're getting to, Caroline. Yeah. What it is is that I'm extremely mysterious, aloof and sexual, and you're just an oddball. (laughs) Just a chattering oddball. I'm a chattering oddball flinging around a martini glass, and you just belong on a chaise long, just draped in velvet, eating caviar and black cherries, flipping through your Vogue and not talking to the love of your life. (laughs) <laughs> i think i think what this is actually exposing this sort of the russian divide the cold war that is between you and i about this man war between us yeah is that i it it, it, it it doesn't actually come down to individual taste at all or whether i have penis envy about the russian i think what it comes down to is that i have been up gavin day's asshole for seven years and i like know everything about that man and we know everything about each other and we blither away nonsense to each other all day and i love it and i wouldn't change it for the world and the idea of like having all these dot 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 question marks around someone is very tantalizing <laughs> I do, I do, I totally understand that. I totally understand that. And that tracks as well, because for the most part, you know, I haven't been in long-term relationships, so it's just been, it's been a little bit too much of the old dot, 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 question mark. You've been drinking up too much essence for too long. I've been been doing a lot, pint after pint of the stuff. I'm done with the essences now. I just, I just want, I just want someone solid to have a just want to know someone's birthday. Yeah, I just want to know, do you have a kid and how old are you? I don't want the essence. I don't want any more essence. I don't want any of the piano stuff and the and the poetry. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, Carrie has that great line where she says, you know, if I really wanted to have a kid, wouldn't I have had one by now? Like, I, I wanted to be a writer, became a writer. If I want a ridiculous, extravagant pair of shoes, I find a way to get them. If I wanted a baby, I would have one. And Charlotte says, 
um, you know, you just haven't met the right man at the right time. I know. I don't. It's weird. I don't know where I stand on that. I think about this all the time. I think I used to think, you know, it's such a primal pull. If a woman really wants it, she makes sure like she she makes sure that she that she gets it. I don't I don't know if that's true anymore. I don't know if you are hit. I don't know if you are hit by a big primal yes or no. I think there are a lot of people who just do it because I think they're looking for a new narrative act. You know, when you're just like, this is not why I want to have a kid. But, you know, sometimes where you're just like, you get up and then you, you know, you get the flat white and then you sit on your laptop and you refresh Gmail and you write a few thousand words and then Mm -hmm. you go to the restaurant in Soho and then you drink a bit too much and you come home and you get, you do, I do have sometimes days being like, oh, wow, is this going to be it? Forever, is it yeah, just going to be this I'm, on a cycle? Basically, a variant of this. I had this exact same moment. I think last year, which is sort of when I, and up until that point, I felt very extremely ambivalent to the point of negative about kids. And then, like something happened for me at work, something really great. I can't, I can't even remember what it was, which actually goes to serve my point even further. Something happened and it felt great and it felt great for a day and then I got on with the rest of my life. You know, I was like, oh yeah, that thing happened and then the next day I got up and I walked my dog and I refreshed Gmail and I got my flat white and whatever. And then I had this kind of moment where I was like, oh, like the job is always going to be the job. It doesn't matter if I'm like 24 and being asked to write for some random blog for a hundred quid or if I like, you know win a massive literary award or something somewhere down the line. Mm. It's there they actually there aren't that many ways to feel glad about something. You know? It's it doesn't feel that different. And so I was like, wow, totally. Maybe, maybe I just maybe kids are just the thing you have to feel a new thing. Yeah. Because also <laughs> like, it's so yeah. it's so like it's so unpredictable and ever changing. And in a way a career is that and it's very exciting. And it's also, you know, you you love the process of it as well as the various results and potential spoils and accolades and, you know, Mm. sense of resolution. But it is, you and I have been writing since we were teenagers and we Mm. probably will be writing until we die. So that's a long time of doing basically 10 variants of the same thing. And, And it is there are only so many variants of those feelings that you have having an having an idea working mm. on the idea the hard bit of the idea the exciting bit of the process the bit where you finish the bit where the people consume it yeah it's yeah. Like, i don't want to downplay no you're it, so right it, you're so right yeah but yeah. it's not like i i do sometimes have these existential moments of like yeah i don't know if i could do and I don't know if like kids is the answer, but like I just that now on mm. repeat until the grave. I don't know if that would feel like enough of a life for me in terms of yeah. experience. Which I think comes up in this show a lot. It actually comes up at the very end of this episode where, you know, Carrie's had this all the soul searching with, you know, Charlotte and, 
you know, with Brady as well and with the Russian and like, you know, is this okay that I could stay with this person and possibly never have children? And she has this conversation with Samantha where Samantha says, you know, well, what else is on the menu if not kids? And then, you know, Carrie's like, you know, adventure, travel, love, sex, passion, you know, and she's like, yeah, not too shabby, mm. is it? You know, and I, I love mm. that they have somebody mm. really representing that side of the argument, you know? Yes. Yes. And there's also the theme of children and whether to have children is really examined 360 in this episode because this is also the episode where Samantha asks her oncologist whether, why she got breast cancer, Mm. which is obviously something that no one can answer. But the doctor says uh, kind of offhandedly, oh, there's... um, you know, potentially lifestyle factors. And she says, what could they be? And she, he said, oh, there is some research that possibly suggests that women who have children are at a slightly lower risk of uh, having breast cancer. Samantha, I think understandably, mm-hmm. takes this as um, as a, a judgment on the choices she's made. And later when she's regaling the girls with the uh, account, she screams, he's basically saying I'm a whore who deserves cancer. <laughs> Samantha wants to get into this like top oncologist. She wants to see this uh, Dr. McAndrew and it's impossible to get an appointment. And there's a nun who's there who is also desperate to get an appointment. And the nun not only doesn't have children, but she she's never had sex and she's ended up with the exact same disease that, that Samantha mm. has. So I think that's just like a really nice moment that just shows that like, you know, this is the flip-flopping fortune of life. This is how, it, it doesn't matter how good a person you choose to be. None of us uh, can make decisions, moral decisions that protect us from the slings and arrows of something as unpredictable as as disease. Um, and I think it's I think it's really good that the writers make that point. This isn't Samantha's punishment for promiscuity. Mm. Yeah. Before we move on, I'd like to very quickly talk about Steve's reading material on his honeymoon. Oh so, Are you obsessed with this? So we first see Steve in the bar chatting up Miranda. And what's he doing, Caroline? He's reading, darling. He's reading. I freeze-framed it earlier to help ironclad this thesis, but sadly I couldn't. As hard as I I tried and as much as I zoomed, I couldn't see what the title of the book was. But Steve is someone who retreats into literature. (laughs) We see it. We see it again (laughs) when he is, I think, is it in series two where we worked out that he was in bed with Miranda and it's at the point where Miranda's getting very frustrated with him. We paused on the book and it was a fish picture book. (laughs) It's like literally like, oh, Rare breeds of exotic fish for your home aquarium. And it just pictures a fish. It's so weird. (laughs) We then found out when we paused on the honeymoon scene where he's reading, it was a book called Death Qualified by Kate Wilhelm. And then Mm -hmm. Caroline didn't really come with me on this journey, but I then looked up the book on Goodreads (laughs) and read all the reviews. And it's like a really sort of... It seems, I'm sure it's a great book and I'm sure it's done very well, but it seems like a sort of quite trashy um, legal story, which I thought would have been a great scene between Miranda and Steve. 
that he's reading this trashy book about the law. And so I have written an imagined deleted scene. Oh, my God. Oh, my for God. Us, for us to perform. This is, listeners, I'm hearing this for the first time. I think it's fitting that you play Steve because so many sentimental listeners have enjoyed your Steve. Oh, my, I can't believe you're impression. spraying this on me. This is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, there's a VO. I can't believe there's a VO. Do you want me to do the VO okay, I'll do as the, well? Okay, you can do the VO. I'll do the VO and then you do the stage direction. I can't believe I'm reading okay. this ice cold. Wow. <laughs> Meanwhile, upstate, Miranda's honeymoon needed a little sweetening. Steve is lying naked on a sofa in the boutique honeymoon shack absorbed in his novel, Miranda Enters. Okay, so I've used half of my remaining bar of battery and limited Wi-Fi to deduce that there is a five-mile hike that we can do but we'll need to move fast before it gets dark. Can we do it tomorrow? I'm having a nice time horizontal here. Well, I think we'll have a better time vertical, so get dressed. Give me ten more minutes. My books just got really good. (laughs) Oh, my God. Come on, Steve. Don't you want to see something other than these four four walls and my bare ass? Don't you want to see some trees or a bear? I own a bar. Oh, my God. I can't believe you've written this line. I own a bar on the Lower East Side. I want to break from wild animals. Oh, I would have written, I want to break from bears, meaning like heavy set gay gentlemen, but I like this. <laughs> you can't give notes on the scene <laughs> while we're doing it. There is a knowing smile between Miranda and Steve. What even is this? Miranda grabs the book, Steve protests. Death qualified by Kate Wilhelm. <laughs> Miranda reads from the back of the book jacket. Barbara's given up the law, but she's still death qualified, still able to defend clients in Oregon who face the death penalty if convicted. The small town courtroom is where the truth can be found. If one can spot it through the blinding maelstrom of injustice, confusion, chaos, reality and love. Steve, you're better than this. It's a good story. Hey, it's a good story. It's filled with legal inaccuracies. What's the matter with you? Did you leave your brain in Manhattan? Miranda. Miranda, (laughs) I may... Miranda, I may not have gone to Harvard, but I can appreciate the narrative of a ruthless bitch, literary or otherwise. Oh, very sharp. Steve stands. (laughs) I'm taking a bath with Barbara. Steve exit. Hold on Miranda's remorseful yet exasperated expression. Very good, my darling. A wonderful scene. I believe this is canon. This was shot and it happened. I think it I think it was shot. Oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you for indulging me. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Episode 16 is Out of the Frying Pan. 
which is basically the episode that we remember as the Russian being very, very Russian. So this is when Samantha goes into chemotherapy and Carrie is looking for comfort and reassurance from the Russian and he just gives her kind of cold, uh, straight talk where he he basically just continues to say, well, your friend could die and I kind of want you to be prepared for that because Mm. I had a friend who had cancer and she died and I wasn't prepared. And it kind of exposes this um, huge personality difference and cultural difference, I suppose, between the two of them that she needs more cushioning in the way that she's treated. I have a lot of thoughts on this episode and this and the, and this story arc in particular. Um, because in the last um, five years of my life, I've had two people in my life be diagnosed with cancer, one of whom who died and one of whom who lived. And in both cases... Everybody went hell for leather on the, they're going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Got a great doctor. Got a great this. Got a great that. Chances are good. All this. And it doesn't, it helps to an extent. It helps the person feel supported. Um, it helps everybody keep their chin up. But to a certain extent, it doesn't really make a fucking lick of different difference, really. And I also think that when a person is really ill, constantly insisting to them that they're going to be fine it's sort of you build a closet for them um Mm. and in that closet they have to worry alone about Mm. their death about what's going to happen after they die if they die what's going to happen to their children their friends their parents and they create a closet for themselves where none of their friends and loved ones can enter because every time they do, the friend tells them that the closet doesn't exist. And people become extremely self-centered in conversations with ill people because they're so focused on soothing themselves more than they're focused on soothing the ill person. And it's all about, you know, what what they can't handle and conversations around morality that they can't have. And I just think it's really, really important. And it comes at the end of this episode. It, it's really important to let someone like talk about their what they're most worried about, you know? And, and also it's really important that you yourself, like when you're, you know, very close to a very ill person, that you take that time to sit and live in the idea that you know, maybe this round of chemo doesn't work or maybe this revolutionary procedure doesn't work and you have to sit in it because, you know, yeah, when that when that person dies, like, you often don't get the goodbye you wanted or needed. You almost never do, actually, particularly if you're someone's yeah. friend and they tend to spend their last moments with their, you know, blood family. Um, you almost never get the goodbye you want and so you need to have that closure towards the closing months of that person's life because you'll never you'll never get that perfect goodbye otherwise you know so I do think what he says to her is so important and I feel like I always want to shake her and make her listen to him you know about his friend you know Sophie that died and like she's like oh my god I can't hear about your friend that died and every single time I'm like ask him about his friend who died like I can't tell you like having having had one of my, and I know you've had you know people very close to you 
go as well. But like having had one of my best friends die on me, there's nothing I hate more than when people sort of look away or avert their eyes when I am still, and, and not sort of realize that I'm still having a relationship with this person who's dead. And them pretending yeah. like it's this chapter that closed before they met me or that doesn't mean anything to them is really annoying and really hurtful. And I just, and you can always, always tell when you when someone close to you has died, when you're talking to someone and they go, oh, what was their name? Or, oh, when mm-hmm. did that happen? And when they show that interest mm-hmm. and they, they're interested in the person that you lost and not just the uncomfortable conversation and the uncomfortable thoughts that they're about to have, you know? Yeah, I just, I just have a lot of feelings about that episode. What about you? No, I think that's very understandable. And I think you're so, so right. And that closet metaphor is just so perfectly articulated that it, it's a very lonely, lonely place to put someone who's facing death mm. where they feel like they can't burden the people who will continue to live with their own fears of what death will be like. And I was listening to an interview with Terry Gross recently and she was talking about a very close friend of hers who died. And she said, it took me a while to realise that the greatest gift that I could give her, not even gift, what I owed her and how I honour her and how I love her was to just let her speak about her fears. And she said, people who are dying, you know, they want to talk about dying. They don't don't want to be distracted. They don't want someone to lie and and be saccharine with them or try and comfort them they want to be able to talk about it of course Mm. they do it's such a huge thing to be processing and I think it's an important twist in the tale that Samantha begins this episode going into chemo saying it's fine I'm here I am Mm. I'm best friends with the chemo nurse I'm having a laugh, cancer's hilarious, it's totally whatever. And then the thing about cancer that I think I never understood until I saw it close up is that for years, cancer for me was, you know, fundraising and pink ribbons and that you pin on your jumper and marathons and smiling children with no hair. And actually cancer close up, it's like, and it's treatments, it's like, a fucking horrific, horrific, horrific thing. An awful, awful thing for a person to go through mentally and physically. And by the end of that episode where Samantha's first started chemo, she's like feeling ravaged by it. And she wants to talk about how horrific it is. And she wants to talk about the possibility of death. Um, There's this bit that I love when they're in Brooklyn, which is... um... When Steve comes home and Carrie is there talking to Miranda and they've got this fire log going in the grate and Steve has brought cheesecake cannolis home from the nearby bakery and he kisses Miranda and he puts down the cannolis and he says, I love having your friends over. And it's just one of these moments that like when you're in a long term relationship and you know, you can get so bogged down in the domesticities and the who gave the dog her eye drops bullshit that like when you're when your boyfriend behaves like like a perfect little show pony for your <laughs> friends and like visibly loves you in front of them and buys you all treats and tells them how much he, he loves them you're like oh it's just so worth it it's worth all the like rouse about the gas bill you know <laughs> 
totally. It is such a lovely moment. It feels like a very grown-up moment, doesn't it? It does feel very, very grown-up suddenly, this this second half of this series. Really grown-up, yeah. Especially um, Steve feels very grown-up as well, because he's always been quite a boyish character, hasn't he? And, like, you know, he has quite a young person's job for a long time. You know, he's a bartender and... And he just feels like a real man. And he's like the one who has to tell Miranda, you know, look, Miranda, it's not just you anymore. Like, look around, you have a family. And, you know, he, she looks at the baby and the dog and the cat and she, she goes, oh, holy shit, I'm married, you know? And it's so funny that they have that moment together because she's generally the one who's saying to him, you know, grow up, Steve. And the fact that he has to say to her, grow up, Miranda, like it's, I I love that there's kind of an equilibrium to their relationship now. It feels like a new phase of their relationship, doesn't it? That there's this big role reversal and it is grown up. And yet neither of them are commenting on the fact that every episode their son is played by a different actor. (laughs) Another... Another tank baby at another weird stage of development where it's like, is he one? Is he three? (laughs) Like, what's going on? Something else that happens in this episode that I just want to very quickly touch on because it contains a phrase that has been going round and round in my head for 17 years, um, which is Stamford being photographed with Smith, him ending up in a gossip magazine and is titled in the caption, Unidentified Older Gay Gentleman. And it was you who pointed out that he then says at the dog show, I got outed. And this is like yeah. huge. And yeah. no, one, no one really talks about it, but this is huge because back in the day, back in series one, there's that whole storyline where Carrie meets his grandmother and it's this like, you know... He's middle-aged at that point and he's and he still hasn't told his family. Yeah, he's in he's in the closet. Yeah. And he's outed as being named as an unidentified older gay gentleman. It's horrible. It's horrible. And and the way he says it as well, he says, Marcus got three auditions off the back of that photograph, and I've been outed. And everyone goes, ha 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 ha, and they resume <laughs> watching the dog show. But it's like, no, we should really talk about the fact that Stanford's been outed. <laughs> I think we need to talk about Splat and Lexi Featherstone. So I think this is one of the most iconic episodes of Sex and City ever. And uh, while I was watching it, Gavin, you know, came in, sort of laced up his shoes to go for his run and watched like 10 minutes of the episode with me. And I think it broke his mind. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think it's what, because I... I've seen this show so much, I forget how insane it is sometimes. And he's watching the sort of like the, the, the party in, you know, Enid's flat and like it's all people being ha ha ha, you know, what, like, it's Candace Bergen does that brilliant scene where she's like, you know, what, Carrie, why are you swimming in my wading pool and why are you with this sort of lovely older man who should rightfully be mine? And, and I looked to Gavin and he was like, his mouth was open and he was like, wow, what an incredible like line for a woman to deliver to another woman on screen. I've never seen this before. I could really see these cogs turning for him. And I was like, wow, I'm really, I'm really getting this man into these women's lives. And then five minutes later, Lexi Featherston is pegging it out the window and dies. <laughs> and he like stood up and he was just like, what? what? And then it cuts immediately to New York snowing and Charlotte bringing her puppies to the window so they can see the snow. And he's like, 
what? We're having puppies now? A girl just died. And I was like, yeah, Gavin, the show is mental. It's a mental show. <laughs> the show is mental. It's a mental show. <laughs> I mean, that is a jam-packed sequence for him to walk in on, to be fair. It's so, so insane. So much has been said and so much has been written about that that Lexi splat. And I think it's like pretty obvious what the symbolism of it is and the importance of it is, isn't it? There's like a darker underbelly that I saw this time round that I missed when I watched it the first time round. The most obvious is that basically Carrie is perhaps holding on to a fantasy of New York, which is her youth. And it's a, it's a New York of the past mm. that doesn't exist anymore. And... She's contemplating this new life in Europe. This girl who was the poster girl for old New York and affluence and 90s money and Clintonia and all that stuff. Cocaine. Cocaine. It, she, she falls out of a window. Carrie realised that it's time for her to move on. The darker reading of it, which I missed before, is... Enid gives her that speech where she says, why are you swimming in my pool? It's a shallow pool for a woman in her 50s. I basically can't find love. You've got this wonderful man. And then she sees Lexi who says, we're the last two single women at the party. Carrie says, oh, well, actually, I'm here Mm. with someone. Lexi is kind of everyone's worst nightmare that, that... that they are Lexi at the party. It is every woman's worst nightmare, isn't it? That character. I think that's why it's so kind of difficult to watch. Definitely. Yeah. Lexi then dies. Carrie goes to Lexi's funeral. And one of the first things she says is, ladies, when you're single in New York past a certain age, there's only one place and it's down. By the way, I'm moving to Paris. Yeah, it's a really dark line. It's really depressing. Another important set piece in Splat that I feel we have to talk about is the dinner party, the gothic dinner party at the Russians at Nosferatu's house. I mean, he really does look like a vampire. He's got the smoking jacket on. He's staring at everyone intently at this dinner with just some flames flickering in the background. And it is the most uncomfortable It's the most uncomfortable dinner party scene I think I've ever watched. (laughs) Yeah, it feels like some kind of like art house movie. It's like an updated version of Nosferatu where they must all like barter with this ancient vampire to spare their friend (laughs) (laughs) before he like sucks her lifeblood, which, you know, he'll try. Um, That's so true. And, and, you know, as you know, I am a eternal defender of the Russian, but he's on... He's on such shit form. Do you think do you think him being on shit form is more to do with the fact that he's extremely insecure about his show and being the silly old man with the light machines? <laughs> or do you think he's just shit crack in general? I think it's a combo of both. And I don't think it's I don't think to be generous to him, I don't know if it's shit crack. I think what it is is there's definitely like a Euro, <laughs> this is so, this is so broad, so I'm saying this, but there's definitely like a European sensibility, conversational sensibility that I think is quite foreign to 
English people and definitely to American people, where I think that, I know I'm sounding like an American saying the phrase Europeans, which means sort of nothing, but I feel like, like, I feel like Europeans have more of an inclination to talk about ideas conversationally. Mm. Whereas I know that the English obviously like much prefer talking about small talk and and the kind of concrete facts of their lives and with this group of americans they like being outrageous and their conversational currency is shock and wit and wordplay and i think he just i think he just doesn't find it interesting i think he wants to i think well he doesn't want to talk about his work and he definitely wouldn't want to talk about the practicalities like the details of everyone's life so i think he probably wants to sit and talk about ideas which they're just not going to do that bunch of people they're just not going to do it the bit that like feels very very real to me is we've we've all had it happen where we've introduced either a friend to another friend or a friend to a lover or whatever and friends that we like adore and your friend is just being themselves and suddenly you're doing this thing where you're or it could be the other, other way around it could be your boyfriend when you're introducing him to your friends um, you sort of put all of their behavior through a filter where you're pretending to be the other person yeah. and being like, oh, he's going to hate yeah. this. He's going to hate this. And it's really visible when Samantha is has this big bit going about how she thinks her maid is using her vibrator and how like, you know, she always leaves it charged and then the batteries were empty and, you know, she hadn't used it until since, since Smith came back from LA and he goes, oh, baby, that's sweet. And um, she says something... I, I can't remember what country she says exactly. Oh, yeah. But she says, like, I don't know how it is in the wherever the maid is from, but this is America and we don't do things like that here or something to that effect. And you see the Russian just kind of grimace. And it's this moment where it's like, this is how the rest of the world views Americans and this kind of hyper crass commercial country where like you think that everybody outside of your purview is basically rushing around in the mud sharing vibrators yeah he's just so like oh i can't believe this woman is in my house and carrie just sort of sees it through his perspective she's she's doing that thing where she's she's sort of mirroring his sensibility and she feels really embarrassed and then she hates herself for being Mm. embarrassed Mm. and it's all happening behind the eyes you know what do you think he wants to talk about impossible to say (laughs) i would love it if like our bilingual listeners would write in and say when he's talking in french to people in a very animated way what he's actually saying because he seems very animated when he's not talking english yeah Yeah. (laughs) that feeling of being caught between your own familiar perspective that you share with your friends and the new perspective of a partner i mean I, i the merging of partners and friends i think is always a little bit difficult I, I never hugely look forward to it. I prefer getting to the bit where everyone's comfortable with each other. Yeah. And also you do feel, you, you it's all on Carrie's face, as you say, and you do feel sorry for her because she seems like she's frustrated with herself that she can't defend her friend and say to Alexander, oh, come on, this is who she is, lighten up, she doesn't mean it. Yeah. But you also kind of hate yeah. her that yeah. she can't say that which is obviously what Miranda picks up on and she says privately to Steve where she says 
she's not herself. I think about how she behaved that night. She's not herself in front of him. She doesn't make any jokes. She doesn't laugh. She just, and she, she does look, you know, like the life is slightly being sucked out of her as she sits next to this vampire. She's just kind of silent <laughs> and stressed. Also, that scene with Steve and Miranda in bed bitching <gasps> about them. I think that is the number, the so thing good. I most miss about being in a couple. It's so good. It's like going, going for dinners with other couples, then coming home and just tearing them apart. Limb so from limb. It's, 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 I think it's like the biggest treat that you get when you're in a relationship. Oh, it's, it's so <laughs> yummy. So yummy. Um, and the bit that also makes me so sad in that scene is when Steve points out the piano and he says, you know, oh, you, you know any Billy Joel? <laughs> And the Russian just goes, I am not familiar. And it's just like, oh, I hate when people make Steve feel bad about himself. <laughs> and then, and then um, Charlotte, who you think would be the natural connection in with the Russian, like, you know, tries to make conversation about his art and she's, you know, she knows her stuff. She's kind of able to have this conversation and he just does not truck with it for a moment. Yeah. It's just... Oh, it's a horrible dinner party. I'm also, I love that we both noticed in the document um, before the dinner party when uh, Alexander is cooking in the kitchen and his staff is just quietly laying the table in the dining room in the background. Yeah. I love Alexander's staff. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder afterwards whether he says anything to her. Do you think that you never do, do you? When you have one of those awkward dinners... You don't really discuss like Alexander doesn't sit and give yeah. him, give the, <laughs> the lowdown on what he thinks of all of those people, does he? No, no. He'll be like, "Your friend with brown hair seems nice," and that'll be it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, who do you think? Like, if he was on better form, if he wasn't so insecure about his light show, yeah. <laughs> who do you think he would have? He might have connected with that. I was just about to say maybe him and Miranda might have talked about current affairs. Like, I don't know. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know. There's really... It's so hard. It's hard to know. Like global current affairs. Like maybe... They... Yeah. Yeah. Like maybe there's like a coup somewhere they can talk about. Who do you think he'd get on with? Well, I think he, he finds Charlotte insipid because he just thinks of her as like an art fan girl. Yeah. I think if he had, like, met Samantha in, like, a doctor's waiting room, he would have got a kick out of her. But I think seeing it being introduced to her when she's, like, full throttle doing her vibrator monologue was quite gross for him. But yeah. I think there are other realities where they could have got along. I think that Smith, his earnestness, I can imagine Smith in a corner of a room just asking Alexander so many questions and Alexander quite enjoying yes. that. Yes, and the thing about Smith as well is that he wouldn't ask these like fangirl questions where it's sort of trying to imply that you actually know loads yeah. actually in a way that your peers. Smith would be like, how, how do the lights work? And, yeah. and when, you, when you shine them through that lens, th- then what happens? And oh, and cool, and it looks a bit like a sunset. And he's like, yes, it does look a bit like a sunset. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think as oh, well... Oh dear, Caroline, I feel myself writing a deleted scene. I feel it coming on. The conversation between Smith, the oddly wholesome conversation between Smith and the Russian. And I also think there's a world where if he stayed in New York, he would get to know Smith and Samantha better and he would think that they're just a real hoot. Yeah. And Smith would kind of briefly become his muse. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking like, 
maybe Smith reminds him of like, you know, one of those Warholian, like a young James Dean or something. Yes, yes. Like, oh, that would be so good if they ended up working together on like a series of sort of quite surreal video interviews that gives sort of Smith a kind of artistic edge. Yeah. I would have loved to have seen that. (laughs) Well, maybe there are some deleted scenes that will land in your inbox in the next couple of weeks. Who knows? Please never stop sending me the deleted scenes. They're my new favourite thing about you. I feel like a boy of 15 again falling in love. (laughs) Right, on to Paris. Part un. Part un. Part un. Oh yeah, it is un. Sorry. Everyone loves saying de. No one likes saying eh. Part eh. <laughs> um, somebody on the cut pointed out, and I'm really glad that they did, that there's nothing more depressing than Carrie's farewell dinner. Yeah. The shit restaurant, there's no, they're not having any crack. The fact that they're at six o'clock and she has to get the flight at nine. That stresses me out. That stresses me out. It feels really maudlin. Yeah. Yeah. It's in this um, piece in the cut that's like so brilliant. That's like, it's a recurring feature that's called something along the lines of, I can't stop thinking about. And it's this woman who just like can't stop thinking about Carrie's last dinner. And it's the logistics of it. Why didn't she have it the night before? So, it's so weird. I think it's it's this thing of like... Because the writers know they're going to bring her back from Paris. It's like, we don't want to basically blow our beans, right? Yeah. On this big emotional farewell when we have so much more emotional stuff to wring out of the audience. We don't want them to cry here. And so all she says is like, today I had a thought. What if I had never met you? <laughs> that's it. Yeah, that's it. And then so they, crap. And then they all cry. And of course... What we haven't spoken about at all yet, which is that through the previous few episodes, Big has been trying to get back in touch with Carrie. He's clearly had some time to think in his hot tub in Napa um, (laughs) about the ways that, you know, their last interaction went. And he sort of drags her into his car and he's like, you know, last time I saw you, you know, you were amazing to me and I... And she keeps cutting me off and she's like, no, 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 please don't. And it's so... It's so good the way she's like, I really don't want you to say something beautiful that's going to ruin my life. And yeah. that whole thing where they're on the street and like, you know, what is it? Like, you've got some kind of radar. Carrie might be happy. Let's come and shit all over it. It's so good. And then she says, you know, and you can drive up and down this street all you want because I don't live here anymore. I hate that. It's so melodramatic. I love it. It's so extra. That whole, yeah. that whole, you and I, nothing. You and I, nothing. <laughs> it's so extra. I do. It's so camp. It's so good. It is good. I suppose, I suppose it is good because it, it kind of wrong foots you, doesn't it? Because it does really make you yeah. think, wow, that really is it. We've never heard her ever be that final with him. And that angry at him. And also the thing actually that's like, as you said, that's most telling is that she just doesn't want to hear. She she doesn't care yeah. if he loves her. She doesn't want to hear any any more of his bullshit. So it does um it does mean that you really earn that resolution when he when he turns up in Paris. So I do get why it's so over the top. But that but when I rewatch it, I do it's yeah, it's it's so camp. So then Carrie 
has her stressful, depressing dinner and Mm -hmm. gets on her flight, arrives in Paris in one of the strangest hats I've ever seen. Hate it. Hate the whole outfit. Do you know what I hate about that outfit? Just while we're here. What I hate about that outfit, it reminds me of the shop Jaeger. (laughs) It's so like... (laughs) The knitted corsage. Yeah, yeah. It's so like... Outfits for the burgeoning CEO and you. I hate it. <laughs> Such a specific hatred. Um, I do as well. I, I only I remember when I was working in media, the only gift voucher I ever got sent was a fifty a fifty pound voucher for Jaeger because I covered some fashion story or something. And uh, then I went in there and I just couldn't find a fucking thing. <laughs> I was so angry. And I've harbored resentment for that shop ever since. It is burgeoning CEO. <laughs> You're totally right. And something has come over Carrie in this like in these in this first few days where she's in Paris, where it's very reminiscent of her dynamic with Aiden. She she goes full five year old girl again. Yeah. I mean, it's it's set up like that. The fact that he takes her to Paris, pays for her apartment, and she quits her job to be there. I don't want to go too hard in on our best mate, Carrie, but I do... It is disappointing to me. That she goes? It's disappointing to me that she goes to live in a hotel paid by her boyfriend, who's also paying for her to keep her apartment in Paris, and she quits her job to go flounce about. I suppose when you break it down, it is a really powerful twist, and this is why Miranda um, has that you know, big confrontation with her where she says you're living in a fantasy, which she is like the clothes, the music, the hotel, all of it feels like a dream sequence. And she's not engaging with Mm. reality. And the fact that she does these incredibly out of character things, like this is a woman who loves New York. This is a woman who blithers on about having dates with her city. This is a woman who loves work. This is a woman who's so proud of the fact that she's like built a life and a career and a a livelihood for herself, just like chucking it all away to go flounce about like a five-year-old girl in a city with her boyfriend who's paying for everything and do nothing. Yes, and it's it's so interesting to me that Carrie acting like a five-year-old girl is such a, um, a thing she falls back on. Why do you think that is? Why is she such a, like a like a confident, interesting, witty, powerful person in so much of her life? And then when she gets into these relationships with these men, she just like oh, I'm la fenêtre and just like spinning around. And it's just why do you think that is? Absent dad. Oh, ding, ding, ding! Absent dad. Yes, yes. Don't cookie me, Freud. But I think it's absent dad. You're so right. It's the trying to recreate this thing that never happened, yeah. right? Yeah. This idea of like your daddy holding your hand and bringing you around Paris yeah. and pointing at things with you, you know? So much of love, I think, is 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 a an act of correction of what we feel like we didn't get from our last partner or what we didn't get from our parents or what we didn't get from our teenage boyfriend. It's like an act of personal correction. And you really feel that, like that moment when he buys her the Oscar de la Renta dress and he puts the box on the landing table and she looks Mm. at it and she's like, what is it? And he's like, open it. And she like 
opens this ribbon and gives him this like naughty little look and then she opens the box and she gasps and put her hands over her mouth and it is like I, I think it is it's it is, yeah. it's meant to be mirroring something paternal there I think I think that yeah yeah it feels very like a little princess yeah it, totally it? and I actually like I do find it a little bit annoying but I do think it's it's an interesting part of her psychology that she craves being fussed over and spoiled and petted and and being yeah made to feel like a little princess the way that Aiden did or being made to feel precious she's those men make her feel like something precious to be guarded potentially not something like not a woman to communicate with properly but to kind of just wrap in a bow and and look after and that just kicks into turbo turbo gear the minute that she she lands in Paris as you said like she puts that heel on the cobbled street of Paris and she's like spinning around and saying French words to herself and giggling at everything and she's just so back in that mode so true so yeah and it's like she has no other like that's always been a part of her personality, but in France, because she doesn't have her friends and she doesn't have the familiar streets and she doesn't have purchase on the whole community the way she did in New York, it's like all she has left is this like little little princess Sarah yeah. Crew thing that yeah. she does. It's very mad that he doesn't meet her at the airport and she gets a taxi to the hotel where he's like sitting, trying to fuck his own daughter in the in the salon. <laughs> And then she goes in and meets his daughter. And we watched that episode together a while ago. And I remember hitting the space button and being like, that girl is definitely a famous person's child. Because she looks, there's a very specific look that famous children have, which is they have these sort of Bambi-ish skinny limbs, but they have these like foie gras faces where their 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 features are almost swollen i think it's because they have like fashion model mothers um and it's just like huge lips drowsy eyes a little bit sedated looking really full face you know and i was like she's definitely someone's daughter and i looked it up and she is the movie star Vincent Castle's daughter, the guy who starred in La Haye. Bingo! I couldn't believe Mm. that you got that right. And you're so right. There is a certain look of, like, famous people's daughters in particular. And it's also, it's like a plushness. They look like they have only ever had the best ever products on their face, in their gob, (laughs) on their bodies from the moment they were born. Yes, and they they almost look like bobblehead dolls because their heads are very very big on their bodies, you know? Yeah. They they look like they look like p- girls who are just like entirely unfamiliar with what Nivea cream or a disposable razor might be. Yes. Yes. Ugh. fascinated. Fascinated <laughs> by Chloe. Um and uh, ah, you know, Chloe could only give time for her old papa. This <laughs> all, and this that 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 moment when she, you know, she's trying to connect with Chloe, and she's Chloe wants to kill herself because of her boyfriend, and Carrie's like, oh, tell me about the bum, and Chloe just gives her a look like she wants to throw her in the Seine. It's just awful. And talking about how the Eiffel Tower is hideous. I love that bit because I think it really presents that very old trope of the American in Paris mm. very well and it sets up Carrie for what it's what it's going to be like and 
I think you and I have talked about this before, haven't we, about that David Sedaris interview that he did for This American Life like 20 years ago mm. where he talks about being an American in Paris and why he moved uh, to Paris at the very beginning of his fame. And I think it is Ira Glass who observes that there is nothing that is more humbling from an, for an American than being in France. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. American crassness is never as bold and American charm is never as ineffective as when amongst the Parisians. Absolutely. Ugh. Oh, and as well, so um my um friend Fiona Zublin, who's listening along and who's who is an American girl who lives in Paris, texted me while she was watching and she just said, Carrie never wanted to go to Paris. I was like, why do you say that? And she said, she hates being with French people unless they're praising her. <laughs> That's why she loved those bookshop sales assistants. Also, in that Chloe exchange, there's this amazing detail where Carrie speaks, keeps speaking to Chloe in French and Chloe keeps replying in English. <laughs> yes. But then, so she says to Alexander and Chloe, like, look, you know, you guys catch up. You know, I'll, I'll just slow everything up with interpreting anyway. I need to take a nap and get on Paris time. And he's like, I have dinner at the museum. I'll eat light and I'll see you at like 7.30. And then he doesn't come home until 1am. And she's sort of at that beautiful scene where she's lying on the bed with all the layers around her, looking like a princess. And I, I, I really, watching this back, it really bums me out that she spent the first day in Paris alone. Yeah. Bums me out. Me too. And also, maybe because her and Alexander don't really talk and all they do is just sniff each other's essences, <laughs> you really get a feeling like in those first few days in this part one of her Paris adventure of just like, what did you think you were going to do here? Yeah. You don't bring your yeah. laptop, so it's not like you can write like... She could have written some fabulous piece for The New Yorker about being an American in Paris. She could have probably got a book out of it. Yeah. She yeah. doesn't write. She doesn't look up, like, anyone who she might know in Paris. He's obviously working all the time. What do you think she thought she was going to do? Do you think she just watched the film Amelie? <laughs> She'd just seen it, yes. That's what I'll do. I, I find it so, so interesting um, and I, I do think when you do move to another country, and obviously my only experience of this is moving to England when I was 21, but you you do think that friendship and adventure will sort of fall into your lap and that adventure is just a thing that will happen by virtue of things being strange to you and things being foreign and you'll be, you know, trying on a hat in a hat shop and a French woman will say, oh, you must come to dinner with me. And then it'll just, that'll be your mental day with her and things will just happen for you. Mm. And um, it reminds me actually of something that my mum said to me all those years ago when I was moving over and I had this boyfriend at the time who was kind of like semi-casual and was kind of on and off the scene and I was sort of agonizing about, you know, how I wanted him to come with me and we could sort of make a go of London together. And my mum just said to me, she was like, babe, like, you don't want to discover a new city with a boyfriend. Like, you want to be out there. You want to be meeting people. It's like, if you move to a new city with a boyfriend, you'll be in watching TV 
every night and just not getting to know people. And, and he, she was like, and people don't want to know people with girlfriends. Yeah. <laughs> with boyfriends, rather. You know, it's like, that's, you know, you need to be able to be a free agent. And it's I totally like, agree with her. There's a version of Carrie's life where she moved to Paris just for herself. You'll, you're moving to Paris for you, right? And, and she feels the bleeding edge of being a woman alone in the world. And she, she calls people up and she connects with Vogue in Paris. And she, you know, talks to her publishers over there. She does bookshop events. She makes friends with people at these bookshops. She goes to literary events. Her calendar is full. But the fact that the proviso of her going over there is to sort of be his girlfriend professionally it sort of mutes everything and she sort of is so for the first time in her life she doesn't know how to fill her fucking days and there's this thing when she says on the phone where she's just like you know it's too it's too cold and rainy to walk around too much I've been to every museum twice and I just I really do feel the abject loneliness of the whole thing yeah so do I they they paint it very well, don't they? I think it's beautiful. I think those mm. these are some of my favorite episodes, and I revisit them a lot. And I think I revisit them a lot because they're very quiet, mm. and it's the first time in the show's run where it's not this like incredibly dialogue heavy thing where we're like, all these snappy moments or whatever. Just to have this character in these beautiful clothes and these beautiful scenes, just walking and being lonely and eating constantly as well. Just eating little cakes all the time. Caroline and I both share oral fixation, which means we're not happy unless we're stuffing something in our gob. So Mm. it's very relatable to me that Carrie is alone and feeling insecure and anxious. And every scene, you either see her puffing on a fag or stuffing a cake in her mouth. Yeah, yeah. It's the only way she can soothe herself. There's a bit where she's just... There's obviously the, the very the beautiful shot, which is just basically a painting of her in the ladybird dress, um, sitting with those like gorgeous looking fancy cakes in that beautiful tea room with that huge dog next to her and she just starts feeding the dog, you know? Yeah. And I think like <laughs> what's important here and what's a real full circle moment is if we know anything about Carrie, it's that she hates dogs. Yeah, why couldn't she show some of that courtesy to Pete? Because she didn't need to then. Like, the fact that Carrie, who doesn't really like dogs or animals, is just, like, feeding a huge slobbering dog (laughs) a cake with her fingers shows how lonely that person is. And you would only know that, like, if you followed this character as closely as we have done. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of what's happening in New York in these episodes... We have um, Samantha in her beautiful, like, pixie cut mm. with her blonde hair. Fab. Uh, and we have Charlotte and Harry getting really on this adoption thing, right? Which it really moves me whenever I see those scenes because it really this amazing parallel between how it was with Charlotte and Trey when she was trying to get pregnant or to begin the sort of adoption process. And he was so removed from it. And it really felt like, oh, this is my wife's project. Yeah. And as opposed to Harry and Charlotte, where it just feels like they're this team and they're in all together. And it's like, it's their whole lives getting this started. And it's just, oh, it wrecks me. Yeah, it wrecks me too. And there's this scene after the that kind of young couple from West Virginia come in. Is it West Virginia? Um, 
and they sort of say, oh, we changed our man. And Harry is sending this angry email to his third option lawyer about, you know, how, you know, these terrible people and he's really furious. And Charlotte just like has so much strength in that moment. And she goes, honey, we're Jews. We've been through worse than this. <laughs> yeah. And as you laid out in, as the hypothesis of this great American novel, this is, you know, Charlotte, who was with Trey, literally a damsel in distress. She was a, a, a damsel falling in front of his white knight. You know, that's how mm. they met. And he was always kind of the stories that she had in her head was that she found love and he scooped her up and she would go off into the mm. sunset on his on the back of his horse happily ever after. And actually, like, what you see here is this woman with grit. You, as you said, yeah. like, this woman who's like, she's the one, she's being the matriarch. She's the one holding shit together. She's the one with steely determination and sunniness, you know, like, steadfast sunniness. Such Such huge character development for her. Huge, huge. When we've seen her fall apart so much, like with the miscarriage, with all of the, the disappointments she's had, and for her to be like the one putting her hand on his shoulder, I think yeah. is so powerful. Yeah. I just, I don't know. Sorry. I really don't want to have another crying episode because I just, it's really getting to me today. I don't know why. I know. It is really, really I think it's because I'm a bit miserable generally and it's just really <laughs> any excuse to cry. You're outsourcing it onto Charlotte and Harry. Exactly. And then Charlotte goes to Carrie's apartment. Yes. She sees the laptop on the bed, which seems to upset her. And by the looks of the notes that we've made, Caroline, it seems to really sort of anger you. I just can't believe she didn't bring her laptop. So she just like wasn't planning to write at all. I agree with you. I agree with you. Like, okay, maybe you're not working on an active project. Maybe you haven't sold a book or anything. But the fact that you're not going to spend one of your endless afternoons in Paris, like taking your laptop to a cafe and just, you know, having a few observations about what it's like for you. Like, the fact that she's left this huge part of her personality. Like, I, I love that scene with um, Miranda in the previous episode where, she, you know, Miranda says, you can't quit your column, it's who you are. And Carrie says, it's not who I am, it's what I do. Mm -hmm. And I think that is very true. I think, like, that thing of, like, not wanting to have this stasis and working on the same stuff for ages just because that's what people expect of you is very real. But the fact that she seems to have been give, like, given up her identity as a writer entirely makes me so mad. I think as well that it's representative of her giving up her relationship with herself. Like that column is always about a relationship with self. This sacred place, private place where she connects to all parts of who she is and who she was and who she will be. That's like what's magic about those literally hundreds and hundreds of scenes where we've seen her asking questions to herself on her own in the dead of night with like the New York breeze floating through her mm. curtains in her little apartment. Her writing and that column is so much more than about a career. It's about a woman who is like, it's about self-examination, a woman who um, wants to understand herself and wants to understand her place in the world. So the fact that the laptop has been left there ties in so well with this this like overarching story of her falling in love with this man, which means she completely abandons who she is and she abandons her relationship with herself. She stops caring for herself. She stops knowing herself. And instead she goes and inhabits his life and his desires and sees the world through his lens. So leaving that job and leaving that laptop um, is, is actually very thematic because 
the realization she has is that she needs to be as as we said at the top she needs to be in love with someone where she can retain that that relationship with who she is yes yes and there's there's actually an excellent foreshadowing in the previous episode where she's writing her column and she's annoyed that everyone keeps interrogating her over her plan in paris and she says is it time that we stop asking questions and then it ends in a question mark and then she deletes the question mark and ends it with a period and uh and it's that thing of like someone who's really exhausted with being themselves and really wants to just leave it alone now yeah and like that's very real you do get fucking sick of yourself sometimes you get sick of your own brain you get sick of your own neuroses you get sick of your own habits and the idea of like living in an alpha person sort of personality and worldview for a while is so tempting and ultimately it's what he wants as well Mm -hmm. like as we kind of as these sort of episodes unfurl in Paris he she sort of realizes like through conversations with his ex-wife and through interactions with him like he doesn't really care about her fulfillment her career her ambitions he just really just wants a sort of amusing prop yes and while Charlotte is collecting the post in Carrie's apartment Big rings and she picks up the phone and then she invites him to the cafe. It's even now, having like what rewatched all these episodes so intensely, it's weird to see him in the cafe, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's like because because all of the big and carry scenes happen, just the two of them together, he doesn't really interact with them very much. And so it feels like he's walked in from a different TV show and it's like, oh, he's in this like taboo woman's only space. Mm. Like he's in the harem, mm. you know? Yeah, totally. And that that thing that he says where he's like, you three are the loves of her life and a guy's just lucky if he comes in fourth and they all share these like sweet smiles between each other. And then I think that's the moment where you really buy into the big and Carrie ending up together thing because you're like, Oh, you do get her. You we get think it. you haven't been listening for six years, but you have. You know her better than anyone. But I think what's so iconic about that scene as well is that it comes down to Miranda. It like it like it's like it's like a court case, and it like yeah. she's the judge, you know. It like, and what's also important as well is that not only is kind of Miranda canonically like the best friend, like they're all best friends, but Miranda sort of nudges out everybody else. And I think like, I feel like everyone sort of understands that without yeah. ever having to say it. And she also has this piece of information that nobody else has, which is that she got the phone call from the payphone from Carrie saying, you know, she's so miserable and, you know, she just wishes she was here with Big or she keeps imagining what it might be like if she was here with Big. And so it's so great watching Cynthia Nixon just like, measure it up you know of like and you can really see her interrogating she's like I think Carrie's unhappy but am I just sort of putting a narrative on it because I really do want her to come home will it be selfish of me if I sort of do this because it it is what I want but also is it best for her and you can see her weighing it all up and then she leans in and she utters the phrase heard around the world and I'm gonna let you say it go get our girl (laughs) And it is so exciting. I mean, it's cheesy as fuck, but it's so exciting because then you go into episode two and you're like, oh, we're in a quest. <laughs> yes, 
we've had this sort of melancholy thing of like, oh God, Paris isn't working out, is it? This is a bad choice. And you're right, we open with the last episode. It's a quest. Yeah, it's really exciting. I remember literally screaming <laughs> watching that with my mom on the sofa. Oh, so good, so good. And then, so then we go for that next episode and it opens on that fabulous lunch that she has with Juliet Petrovsky's ex-wife, who is the most beautiful woman in the world. You you can tell that this woman has so much resentment and things to say about her ex-husband that she has like, like past resentment that she has found a way to just accept. With the help of a therapist, she's found a way to just accept Alex for the ex-husband and the father that he is and just let go of it all and treasure him for the sake of Chloe um, their foie gras daughter to just accept <laughs> him for what he is and um, let go of what he isn't. And the line that is so telling to me is when Carrie is talking about her column and how uh, she still is a writer, she says kind of defensively, and how she's had a book published. She looks at Carrie with an icy glaze and says, and Alex is comfortable with that. Ah, people change. Oh, good. Your impression is wonderful, by the way. You do a very good French impression. <laughs> and uh, the thing where, where Carrie says to her quite blithely, oh, Alex never mentioned the work that you did. And she just raises her eyebrows and that's mm. it. Mm. What do you think their marriage was like? I think that he was at the absolute peak of his fame and he was a neurotic mess and she needed to be a mother to him constantly and be his support and be his sounding board and uh her her desire basically exactly what was being reflected with Carrie with him with this exhibition her desires and her career and uh, her needs were completely shelved because he believed that was the price that she had to pay for being in love with a famous artist what do you think yeah exactly no notes no notes <laughs> um I also feel like if she had stuck it out in France, her and Juliet really could have been friends. I feel like they got on. And then finally, after all this loneliness and all this sort of abject misery in Paris, she finally has a nice afternoon when she meets her bookshop people, who those people are just really burned into my mind. I feel like if I passed them on the street, I would know them. I love the bookshop people. I have the sex. She has the sex. We all have the sex. Carrie Bradshaw. I think we're all waiting for that moment, really, aren't we? In a bookshop where someone will like, Kerry Bradshaw, Dali all the time. No, doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. never gonna happen. And I went to Paris on my own for a bit after the book was published. I think I probably had some very embarrassingly delusional ideas of what would happen when I was in Paris on my own. And uh, I really didn't think one of them would be me persuading a sales assistant in Shakespeare and Company that I did in fact write a book that... I think they had not they had not sold one copy of <laughs> completely untouched. Wow! I was just waiting. Paris, it humbles us it all. It humbles us all. I just wanted them to make the party for me. It's <laughs> all I wanted. Why wouldn't they make the party? Why wouldn't they close oh. down the shop and make the party for me? After Carrie goes to the party that was made for her. Uh, and she realises that she's blown it. And the poor French sales assistants have all left, crestfallen. God, imagine how gutted they must have been. I'm so gutted. And like, as well, the fact that the book has been left on the table with a wine stain. 
And it's like, I, I really believe that. Because obviously it's good, you know, it's good staging because like, oh, we know exactly the party. But the idea that someone loved your book and then you stood them up and then they just fucking left the book behind because like, fuck that woman. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Really hard. And there's something about her seeing the cover of that book, I think, and being connected to people who knew who she was when she was in New York that makes her realise the capacious gape that has formed between who she is now and who she truly is, who she's trying to be Mm. to please this absent man and what she has left behind and what she has abandoned in order to try and please him. And, you know, that she doesn't want to become Juliet. Yeah, yeah. What do you think of the finding of the carry necklace and the lining of the bag? Love it. Corny, but I love it. Corny, but I love it. She's found, it's like, there's something about her finding her name and her having yeah. that moment of, of coming back to herself. Oh, it's so good. And this, the thing as well, what I love about it is that when she finds it, she doesn't just leave, she bolts. Yeah. Like, and what I love about it is that it's so expected and it's what Big is doing, right? It's the quest Big is on, right? He's doing this mad dash across Paris to try and find Carrie. And we're, we're very used to romances ending with mad dashes to the airport, people trying to find each other just in time. And what's nice is that we have these two people on these mad dashes, him to find her and her to find herself. You yeah. know, it's this thing of, she's actually not looking for him. She doesn't know he's there. And this thing of like instant realization and then like running across Paris and getting in this taxi. And it, it feels like, it's shot the way those traditional reunion scenes are shot with this like, and I have to get here and I have to get here. And the thing she has to get to is this little party that's been having for Hadvert, you know, it's, and it's a real, you're totally right. It's like these people who are connected to the person she really is, she has to find them because it's like, she has to remember herself, you know? And I find that really powerful. And also that dress is just my favorite (gasps) of all time, I think. Me too. And And just the beautiful symmetry of like, the show that begins with the pink tutu mm. and then ending it in this sort of mint green tutu with the beautiful straps on the back and the fitted bust and it's just gorgeous. And then we have those brilliant scenes of just like big in the car, flying past her. She gets back to the the hotel. You know, she talks to Petrovsky and he and he does that thing that I hate and I really can't stand where when someone decides that it's too late for your feelings mm. and it's like, like I, like I think men do it a lot more than women do, but like the, oh, I'm too tired for this. Let's talk about it in the morning. And it's just so dismissive. And she's like, no, we'll, we'll talk about it now. Yeah. And then, and then we have the slap. I hate, the, I hate slap. the slap. I so hate much. the slap. I think I hate the slap so much because of the baiting of the slap that was in the press at the time. And everyone sort of thought that like Sex and the City in its final moments was going to suddenly launch into a domestic abuse storyline. And like people were talking about, yeah, the Russian guy beats the shit out of her. <laughs> like there were all these sort of scenes taken on long lens cameras of the slap happening. And everyone was so like, weirdly excited about the slap. And then this sort of, it's just such a damp squib and it's so pointless, this idea of like, he just turns around a bit quickly. It's just so stupid. Yeah, I don't like it because it also sets up, it sets up the damsel in distress thing with her. It it just sets up this totally unearned rescue plot where 
big turns up yeah. and he's, you know, so incensed that he slapped her. And I think it really, like, it really hogs the square footage of that reunion. Yeah. It should be really magical. Agree. And it just becomes him, like, being this, like, protective, charging bull. Yes, yes. And then they... they... What I do like is them afterwards, after they've had that sort of run up the stairs and they fall over and they start laughing and they're walking around Paris and, you know, he's like, most people come to Paris and fall in love. You came and got slapped. It's like, it is funny. Um, I just I just wish that instead of all that, we had just them enjoying Paris. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, them booking themselves into another hotel across town her sending for her things, like maybe a final goodbye with the Russian, you know, I would appreciate that much more because like the, these two characters have been waiting to be in Paris together for six years and they should really... Yeah. I, I just want, you know, two days of them having a good time in Paris at the very, the very least. All right, I will write some deleted scenes. Thank you. I would like this. <laughs> more scenes for me. And then, you know... Big comes up to Carrie's flat, which is a very rare occurrence in the show. The next morning, she just surprises all the girls at brunch. It's fabulous. It makes everyone cry. We're being very Carrie-centric, but that episode also has this amazing montage of, you know, Harry coming in and and showing Charlotte a photograph of the baby they're going to adopt. And, you know, Mary Brady coming to live with Miranda and Steve. And it's just really beautiful. I will not have a bad word said about the last five minutes of Sex in the City, the TV series. I think it is note perfect. And I think it is so moving. And I think that they take every character to the most satisfying, beautiful conclusion. And I think... The music, the way it's cut, the way it's shot. I just think it is a masterpiece. I really, really love that last few moments. The bit that always gets me is when they go into the music montage, when she, she, we find out where they all are. You've got the love. Yeah, we find out where they all are in their life. Smith comes back and tells Samantha that he loves her. And then you, they carry uh, surprises them at the, coffee shop the you've got the love the most amazing perfect song choice for that whole show and what all of the like ties all of their stories together so well which is about love self-love and love for each other and how we love and as we said at the top like how do we love ourselves as well as fall in love without abandoning ourselves and and then it's the voiceover talks about all the love that they found. And the bit that always makes me cry is the bit with um, Miranda and Steve with the baby. And it's and the voiceover says, there is, you know, there's love that takes you far from where you started. <laughs> because that's what I feel sometimes with like, not just necessarily with like people who have kids, but... You know, you see those people, you see people that you love, who you've known for a really long time. And you see, you see them when they're in the right relationships, you see how much they've grown. And you realise that is the function of love, is to make you the best version. 
of yourself and to help you make another person the best version of, the, of themselves and to free each other and grow together. So that's the line that just every time I just, it's only a few words, but it just absolutely undoes me. I always knew that we'd end this crying. <laughs> but that's where they all are, aren't they, at the end of that? They're far from where they started. Yeah. And Harry and Charlotte crossing the street with their little gay dogs. <laughs> and Samantha coming into the spring of her life. Yeah. You know, become, coming into this new phase of her life with this baby chick. And, <laughs> uh, and the fact that you get a sense of her with that, like, little pixie haircut as well, that this thing that she's gone through has now changed her forever. She's far from where she started. She's she you you are always different after mortality touches you in that way. Yeah. And then we learn his name. It's a bit hammy, that isn't it? It's just it's a bit of a cheap trick. <sighs> it's kind of, it is, but it's kind of the only way, right, to end it. Yeah. I love it. I know people who hate it, and I get that, but I really love it. I really love that, like, at the end of the day, he's just a man called John, you know? He's like, he's just a guy, you know? And they're finally human to each other. They're finally being, you know, real with each other. Yeah, and also, we do have to remember, we're very familiar with that twist now, but I remember as a teenage girl, it was like, it felt like, you know, the reveal in an Agatha Christie story. It was so exciting. You're like, you can't believe it. Like, it was so exciting. And then they sort of trumped it again in the movie when they gave us his full name. (laughs) John James Preston. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Wow. This has been a journey. Should we round up for the last time with our dream boys, dream outfits and Carrie Clangers? Let's do it. God, it's an embarrassment of riches with clothes this season, isn't it? Particularly for Carrie. The best season for clothes, in my opinion. Yeah. What are your top picks? Oh, every time I I was watching a scene, I'd like, I, I would think, oh, this is my favourite outfit. And then something else would come along and just swallow it. So I just love yeah. the sort of romantic dresses. I love the rose petal dress that she wears to her last dinner. I love the green <gasps> love ballet that. dress. I know. Yeah. That, oh, it's so. I can't believe she wore that dress to that dinner in that shit restaurant. Yeah. You're right. It does look like rose petals. It's like a strapless, full skirted, shell pink, kind of ruffled dress. And it does look like she's just woken up from a, from a bed of rose petals. It's so beautiful. Gorgeous. And just like the, the the dinner party outfit as well, she's wearing this sort of strapless white dress. Which the dress is beautiful, but the necklace she's wearing something that she looks like it's been smuggled out of Imperial Russia. It's just like sapphires yeah. and diamonds. It's so it's much more costume jewelry than she's used to, and I just love all this yeah. extremely romantic clothing. And I also love something that we um, haven't mentioned yet, but when they go on that date when she's in this like flamenco skirt and Vivian Westwood corset and he just like really appreciates how mad she dresses and he loves like her aesthetics which is you know yeah I find that really really fit 
it's really, really, it's like such a hot thing, I think, when a man really appreciates fashion. Fashion that's also like not man-specific fashion. Yes. Like the artistry of dressing up. And it is amazing when you find someone who who really appreciates how you think about colour. And I, I, I really love that scene where he's so stunned by her in that mad flamenco skirt. And I think it's very believable that a man like that would really relish her most opulent and ostentatious outfits. Yeah, yeah, it's great. But really, I think them in New York, their romance works really well because there's equilibrium, because she understands the city and she's confident and she's grounded. And really, it's only in Paris where it becomes very fucked up. Um, there's also some great casual clothes in this, this season as well. Great winter jumpers, great cashmeres. Yes, and I love that it all, everyone's so wrapped up. Great coats, mm. great boots. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. What about dream boy of the season? Smith, Jared, baby chick for me. Um, and I also have a great appreciation for Steve's bubble butt this season because... Such a good bum. He's just got my perfect ass. Yeah. Just want to bite it. So actually not even Steve's my dream boy, just his ass is my dream ass. Because you see a lot of it on the honeymoon and you really appreciate just like how high and sculpted mm, that bum is. A real chewable bum. You just want to bite into a butt <laughs> cheek, don't you? Just like... Nang, 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 nang. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love Steve's body in general. I like... I, I'm not like you in that I, I don't really like those sort of Grecian ab people. Like, you have a great aesthetic appreciation for like hunks. But I just... Yeah. I love those bodies that look like they got that way because they sort of help a lot of people move a lot of chests of drawers, you know? Yes, I like that kind yes, of I understated totally musculature, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, who's your dream boy of the season? I think I know. I'm not going to bring him up again because obviously <laughs> he becomes very horrible. But I still think he is the most um, interesting love interest of the show, even if he is a bit of a villain, which is the Russian. You have persuaded me. Okay. I'm very glad. Very, very glad of that. I also want to shout out for... The blonde French boy with the camcorder who films Carrie while he's on a boat across the river and he waves at her. Mm. I love that moment. Me too. I remember when I first watched it, I didn't really understand it. And I completely understand it now, which is he's meant to represent to her the hope of someone who will appreciate her. Yeah. Yeah. And, and see her. And see her. Yeah. And it's also this thing, it's like back to what my mum said, is that thing of like, when you, if you're going to go move to a city, you have to be single. Like, and the idea of like the kind of adventure she could have possibly had with that boy that day if she wasn't sort of yeah. shackled to Nosferatu, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what about Clanger? I think we're united on our Clanger. Yes. The Clanger for me is when she goes into the hotel in Paris. And the concierge says, American? And she goes, New Yorker. And he goes, oh. <laughs> and it's so like New Yorkers' opinions of themselves. They just think that anywhere they go in the world, people are going to be so impressed that they're from New York. It's just, it makes me gag. I it makes it. me gag too. And also his noise, oh, like he's so glad. <laughs> I hate it. Yeah, it's my worst. It's my worst. It's subtle and yet it's it's um, a heavy clang. Yeah, that's it 
for the show, I guess. I'm so glad that we're doing the film, Caroline. I would not be able to cope with this being the last one. No, no, we would be... I'm so glad because we definitely would have had to put a, like a, aside a whole day of us just drinking champagne on the Zoom call and stopping and starting. And I will remind everyone we're doing the first movie next week and we're doing the second movie the week after, but we're gonna not we're not gonna spend the whole episode on the second movie. We're gonna do a little bit of the second movie and then we're gonna do a QA. And if you'd like to participate in the QA, please email us at sentimentalpod at gmail.com. This has been Sentimental in the City. I've been Karen O'Donoghue. You've been Dolly Alderton. This has been the greatest TV show in the history of television, I think. Great TV show and an extraordinary collection of American novels. Really, a whole shelf, a whole case of American novels that I... It's been my great pleasure to read with you every week. Me too, my darling. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.